Hello and welcome to the SureDog Radio Preview for UFC on ESPN 28, Hall versus Strickland, or as the kids call it, UFC Vegas 33. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me as always is Keith Schillen. Keith is the executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network, where he is the producer and creator of numerous shows, including MMA Legacy, Getting Too Personal, and of course, The Shillin' and Duffy Show, which brings you UFC recaps every Saturday night or Sunday morning, depending on how long those things run. Keith, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, I think it's always, you know, uh, Sunday morning when we do the show. But yeah, I'm great, man. We got a big, big, huge weekend. I think this is the first time that we're adding a bonus fight to to the card. As, as I don't know, was I supposed to tell people that we're going we're gonna to do the... Pitbull and Nikki fight at the end? That that, oh, that's right. I, well, it, I, it, it's a surprise only because I forgot to mention it. Okay. But, uh, yeah, we're also going to talk about the biggest fight of the weekend, which is Patricio Pitbull Friday versus AJ McKee in the headliner of Bellator 263. But before that, we got 13 fights to get through. Uh, Keith, you and I, I mean, we're, we're down in, in the trenches. We're grinding on this stuff. We're not those people that show up, you know, to give high-level previews of four big fight cards a year. We're talking about these cards every week, week in and week out, the huge pay-per-views as well as just the regular old fight night cards. And because of that, I feel as though we're we're not under any pressure to try to pretend like every one of these fight cards is the greatest thing ever. You know, just we, we kind of have yeah. to spit the truth yeah. about them. We're going to be yeah. watching them either way. We're paying equal attention to them either way. Sure. But we're certainly not here to pretend that every one of these cards uh, is God's gift. Having said that, as I was working on this card, you know, watching tape, reminding myself, you know, what these fighters have been doing in their last couple of fights, this one is especially dismal from a competitive standpoint. There are, okay, here, here's your statistical fireworks of, of the day. This is a 13-fight card. Yeah. There is a seven-fight undercard, six-fight main card. The seven-fight undercard, so 14 fighters, there is not a single fighter with a winning UFC record. Every I, single fighter is 500 or below or debuting. <laughs> of the 14 fighters on the undercard, there are only three who are coming off a win in the octagon. Wow. Who's the, the three? The other 11 are either coming off a loss or they're debuting. Do you know who the three are off the top of your head? Uh, mm, no. <laughs> uh, Trevin Jones, he's coming off a win. Uh, Jinyu Fry is coming off a win. Jinyu Fry, okay, that's two. And uh, I think Nico Montano might be coming off a win. No, 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 she lost to Juliana Pena. That's right. Is it? Oof. Uh, I know there was a third. Dan Wu? Nope, it's not uh, Yanamu. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, dude. It's, it's rough. And obviously, every card is going to have some people coming off a loss. Just about every fight has a winner and a loser. Most UFC fighters don't get cut off their first loss. So by definition, any card should have almost half fighters coming off a loss. But this one is just completely beyond. And it's really only up till you get to the... I mean, third from the top is Cheyenne Bays versus Gloria DePaula. That's two women coming off a loss. I mean, on the main card is Ryan Benoit versus Zaruk Adeshev. They're both coming off two losses. It's... There could be yeah. a cut list. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be. Yeah. Night, so, Sunday. yeah, I can't find the third person. 
uh, uh, am I is is it is it Colin England? No, no, he's making his Not debut, Colin. right? Yeah, England and uh, Pakistan oh, yeah, are both. He was a he was on the contender series, right? Is it one of the fighters that got canceled that's no longer, or is it one of these guys that went from the prelims up to the main card? Maybe, 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 maybe I I miscounted. Maybe there's only two. That's <laughs> even worse. Um, so that's all I'll say about this card. We we have a card that, you know, it, it is like you said. It, there's 13 fights. We're gonna watch all 13. We talk about the 13. Bad MMA is still better than like good baseball. You know, I'd rather watch a, a prelim. A pre, I'm sorry, my alarm going off. I'd rather watch a prelim fight than. Uh, sorry, as I as I'm messing up this segment. Yeah, I'd rather watch a prelim fight uh, on a Bellator card than the NBA Finals game. But I feel like this card is like some people need to follow a recipe when they cook, and then some people are just can throw any spices in something. And I feel like that's what we got here. Like we just have like someone who's got a big pot and they're just throwing like they're making chili and they're just throwing every spice they have in that cabinet in this and see what see what it tastes like afterwards. Because there's no rhyme or reason to like the the layout of the fights. I mean I know the co main event with Chris Dacus was canceled, but you know, you got Ronnie Yaya in the co main events. You got uh Ryan Benoit versus Rook Adeshev is on the main card. I don't know like Jared Gooden coming in short notice is on the main card against Nicholas Stolze. Like, like Stolze, like that. Somehow he lost his opponent, and his card moved. His his fight moved up the card. I don't get it. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's it's. We got two girls who are zero and one in the UFC. That's third from the top. Yeah, this is tough. Poof. Yeah, it's it's a weird one, but we're here to talk about them. I mean. Unless you got anything else, you want to just dive into these prelims? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Right out of the gate, we've got uh, Philip Rowe versus Orion Kosi at Welterweight. Uh, Rowe, the 31-year-old New York native, is 7-3 and three overall. He's 0-1 in the UFC. He made his long-delayed UFC debut in February at UFC 258 dropping a unanimous decision to Gabriel Green. That was his first fight since winning a roster spot in uh, Dana White's Contender Series Season 3 all the way back in August of 2019. Uh, he'll be taking on a fellow Contender Series product in Kosi. The 27-year-old from Northern California is a perfect 7-0 in his mixed martial arts career. He won his UFC contract last August on uh, Dana White's Contender Series the same episode as his brother, uh, Lewis. Both Kosi brothers were meant to make their UFC debuts last November. Orion had to pull out with an injury. Uh, Lewis lost his debut, so maybe it was a good night not to be in the building as a Kosi brother to fight. But whatever the reasons, uh, he is back. He's ready to make his debut. It is uh, this Saturday in the Curtain Jerker. He is the slight favorite. Kosi is minus 160, where you can get Roe at plus 140. Uh Keith, as our resident Dana White's Contender Series expert, I will certainly uh, punt this one to you. Uh, who do you see winning this one, and uh, how? Well, I so these two guys, there was one guy that I like coming off the Contender Series, the other guy I wasn't crazy about. Uh, I was okay with him being in the UFC, but I don't see much ceiling to him. So I, obviously I'll give that who that person is when I get to my prediction. I'll, I'll start with Kosi. 
you, all you have to do is look at his fight record. He has every single one of his wins, both pro and amateur, were all come by way of stoppage. My breakdown of him heading into the contender series was that his record was extremely padded, like facing extremely low-level guys. But then he got matched up against Matt Dixon, who I like as a prospect, on the contender series show, and he got a great win. So, so that I feel much better about him moving forward. He's a southpaw, very powerful straight left. He's got huge power in his hands. Throws a lot of kicks. Defensively, he makes the makes some problems because he, he does a turtle game where he kind of ducks a lot, and uh, someone's going to time a, a knee coming up the middle or an uppercut. But if he gets in close to, he, he's strong in there. Great clinch striking. Uh, he likes it, when he's in there. He likes to try to look for a standing guillotine. He likes to reach over and try to get a standing guillotine when he's in the clinch. But he's also a good wrestler. He's got some insane strength. I've seen him on uh, some of the regional fights just grab a guy's leg and lift him over the head and just throw him. Uh, I see him suplex a dude uh, on the regional scene. I hate that he goes for head and arm throws. Both him and his brother do that. And you, you know anybody who's ever heard these breakdowns know how much I hate that. But on top, good ground and pound. He has had his back taken and some weird scrambles. Which uh, by low level guys, which I don't like. I am a little worried about his cardio due to never going to a decision. But in fairness, I haven't seen him slow down yet. So I just want to throw that out there. Like I'm just questioning it, but I don't, I'm not saying he has bad cardio. Now move over to Roe. This is another guy that had kind of a suspect record heading into the contender series, also faced low level guys. But then he beat uh, Leon Shabazian, uh, Edmund Shabazian's older brother, which that's a quality win. He's a, he's, you know, he's kind of a physical freak. I mean, he's a long and lengthy fight. He's got an 80-inch reach, which you got to like being in the division. Uh, he does well to keep his opponents at the end of his punches. He knows how to use his reach. Uh, he throws straight punches down the pipe. Nice power in both of his hands, though he does drop his hands. He is elusive. I'll give him that, which he needs to be considering he, he relies on head movement. But he's been backed up against the cage when pressured. I don't like that. He has hard leg kicks, but he doesn't really throw his kicks enough. That actually could be a really big tool for him, especially if he wants to rise in the rankings. But he doesn't check leg kicks. And he was actually outworked in his debut by Gabe Green, which is not like – I don't like a guy that uh, – you know, you should never be outworked. And that's always like a, a negative for me. Uh, he was dropped on the contender series by Shabazian in their fight. Uh, when he gets in the clinch, that's probably his best position. He, his knees are a strength. But he's not much of a wrestler in the sense of a takedown artist. He he more of a guy that wins scrambles. If he's if he's on top, pretty good ground and pound. He has a submission threat. He likes to uh, likes a top side guillotine. But I don't like that he's overconfident in his grappling. Like he'll pull guard and, and just he really wants to get the fight to the ground. And he looks like he looks for subs. He plays what I call plays jujitsu instead of trying to scramble back to his feet, and that helps you lose rounds. So which guy do I like better? It's tough because they both faced low-level guys to really grasp them. But I really like Kirstie's, like, berserker style. Like, he comes out, he's throwing hard. If if Roe can weather a you know early storm and kind of create distance and kind of pick apart as Corsi slows down, then he has a really good chance. I just don't know if he does. Corsi has huge power. He can wrestle. I hate Roe's moments of inactivity. I hate his, like, fight IQ of pulling guard against better wrestlers. I'm going to say Corsi finds a way to get past the reach. I think he lands some hard shots himself, maybe mix in a takedown, might get some ground and pound. Uh, I just think he ends this. I think he's going to end it early. Give me Corsi by first round TKO. Wow. Uh, I'm glad that uh, you you seem to have spotted some of the same things I did in looking at these guys. 
both of them have the feel of a real raw prospect to me in that they've both gotten to where they are by doing things that they won't be able to get away with at a UFC level. I mean, at least not one, not once one of these guys gets past the other and moves into like the general population at 170. You mentioned uh, Kosi's like the head and arm throw, the takedowns that he really just finishes with pure power, you know, in, instead of like necessarily necessarily the cleanest technique. Uh, Rose willingness to you know uh, to pull guard, you know th those are things that are not going to serve them well as they keep moving up the rankings. And you imagine that. Both of them, well, Kosi's just young, period, but Roe, at least young in the game, uh, they'll work past those, or they won't, and they'll be out of the UFC. I really want to take Roe in the slight upset here, you know, uh, and if he doesn't get blitzed in the first round, I do think the passage of time starts to favor him, uh, just because, and like you said, I don't know for a fact that Kosi's uh, cardio is bad. But it, I just can't envision him being able to keep up that pace and use the kind of like just brute strength fighting he does for three rounds. So I'm, I'm just almost like betting on it's not going to last. I just don't think Phil Rowe is a guy that's going to test it either. Uh, I have Kosi in this one as well. I also have him. I was going with a first round finish, but just to keep it interesting, I will pull it out into the second. Uh, give me a Ryan Kosi by second round TKO, probably with ground strikes. The UFC Vegas 33 prelims move along. It is the Bantamweight division, and Keith and I have found that elusive other guy who won his last fight in the UFC, as it is Ronnie Lawrence versus Trevin Jones, uh, two guys who both won their last fight. Uh, Lawrence, the 29-year-old uh, Tennessee native is seven and one overall. He is one and zero in the UFC. He won his UFC debut, uh, knocking out Vince Cachero in the third round of their matchup at UFC Fight Night Rosenstrike versus Gone. Uh, he earned that shot in the UFC by winning on Dana White's Contender Series last September, where he beat Jose Johnson via unanimous decision. Uh, he'll be taking on Jones, the man who goes by Five Star, is a 33-year-old fighting out of Guam. He is 13-6 and six with one no contest overall. He's 1-0 and oh with one no contest in the UFC. Uh, in his short notice debut, he notched one of the biggest upsets of the year in the octagon, uh, putting away Tamur Valiev, uh, smoking Tamur Valiev, you might say. And then uh, that was overturned to a no contest because that was not the only thing Jones had been smoking. Uh, he came back from that nonetheless at UFC 259 in March and put away another highly touted prospect in Mario Batista, whom he knocked out in 40 seconds of the second round at UFC 259. Uh, despite Jones being the prospect killer over the last year or so, he is the underdog here. Lawrence is minus 145, Jones plus 125 as just the very slight dog. Uh, Keith, does... Trevin Jones have what it takes to keep this uh, streak of upsets and prospect uh, slayings going, or is is this the end of the line? Yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, we're going to see. I would say this: like, does he? Yes. Will he? I don't know. Uh, he's. I've been impressed with him though. A southpaw, counter striker, very fast hands. He has two really go-to moves. He has uh, his straight left, which is accurate, and his counter right hand. His counter right hand is what put Valiev out in, in their fight. And, and 
it's pretty ironic because I still I said this last time I still feel this way I think he's still raw like he still has has a lot of seasoning you know so if he already has two good tools I think he can continue to add some moving forward he does keep his hands uh, a little too wide for my liking um, you know leaving his 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 midsection open and he also his lack of technique loses power which is kind of crazy when he's knocking dudes out that he can actually dr- generate even more power he struggled when pressed on his back foot. But he has really good hard kicks, though he doesn't check kicks. We saw that against Valiev. He was hurt to the body against Valiev. But he can wrestle himself. Good good takedowns, good timing on his takedown, nice entries. He has four submission wins. He showed incredible heart against, in his comeback win against Valiev. And then he showed any doubters, you know, that it wasn't just a fluke, lucky punch when he knocked out Mario Batista, another guy that a lot of people like. Now, Lawrence, Lawrence is a guy that I really like coming off the contender series. The thing that stands out to me, and I said this last time on him, is his composure. He's very composed, very relaxed, can fight from both stances, sets up his tact with feints well, has a re- really stinging, active jab, nice right cross, will tar- target the po- body. I would say he has plus power. He doesn't have Trevin Jones power, but he has plus power. Uh, he'll he'll sneak in a, a spinning attack to, to please the crowd. Lots of kicks. Uh, and I said this another thing that last time. I said this when I wrote the, the Contender Series preview for him. He has a killer instinct. If he has you hurt, he really turns it up and puts you out. We saw that in his last fight. Um, he, he he knows how to finish the fight. Pretty good wrestler. Solid takedown defense. Uh, if you do take him down, he springs right back to his feet. Uh, prefers it on the feet, but he can wrestle. I love this matchup because I like both guys. Jones has serious power, but I think I think Lawrence was one of my favorite guys in the contender series because of how already seasoned he looked. Um, very technically sound. I'm going to go with him. I think he outclasses Jones on the feet. I mean, obviously, every time Jones fires off a shot, uh, he could knock him out. But I think I think Lawrence is just more technically sound and, and has more tools. So give me him by unanimous decision. And, and I think there's going to be a slugfest. I think there's going to be some really good moments. And I'm, I'm going to lock this in as my fight of the night early on. I'm uh, I'm completely w- with you here. It's interesting what a finished product Lawrence looks like compared to Jones, despite the fact that Jones is the guy that's a 20 fight veteran and is like fought all over the world. Uh, it, it is really weird. I think part of <laughs> it might be that the Jones coming up, especially in like the kind of, you know, South, uh, you know, the Southwest Pacific uh, Island promotions wasn't fighting the, the toughest opposition until fairly late. But yeah, I like Jones has been a pleasant surprise as an addition to the UFC, whereas Ronnie Lawrence is somebody that, like you, I was high on him as soon as I saw him on the uh, Contender Series. Uh, both these guys have staying power in the UFC. It's ridiculous that Jones's like, fantastic signature win was overturned. You know, if you're, start- if, if you're joining the UFC on four days' notice, you know, something you might have smoked three weeks ago that did not help your performance, it, it does suck to lose your, your win over that, but... Uh, I've got Lawrence in this one as well. Uh, Lawrence by decision in yeah should be should be a barn burner. One of the one of the best fights on the card. Next up, it is the strawweights as Jin Yu Fry takes on Ashley Yoder. Fry, the 36 year old uh, Dallas native, is 10 and six overall. She is one and two in the UFC since joining as a former Invicta atomweight champion. She fought most recently back in March at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad, 
taking a unanimous decision over Gloria De Paula to earn her first UFC win. That followed up uh, a decision loss to Loma Lagunmi last October and a third-round armbar submission at the hands of Kay Hansen back last June. Uh, she's taking on Yoder. The 33-year-old Californian is 8-7 and seven overall. She is 3-6 and six in the UFC and uh, fought most recently in March at that same uh, Edwards versus Muhammad card, dropping a unanimous decision to Angela Hill. Uh, despite their opposite trajectories, Yoder is the slight favorite here. She is minus 130, where Fry is plus 110. Uh, I feel bad because even though Jin Yu Fry finally got her first UFC win, I, it didn't make me believe in her anymore. I think the UFC just finally found a woman that the Jin Yu Fry technique would work against. You know, Fry's problem, and you and I have talked about this, is despite the fact that she looks like a comic book character, it's a very small comic book character. You know, she wasn't especially big compared to some of the Adam weight she fought, even though she did have a, a few problems making weight. And when she tried to make her grinding you know, slow-paced kickboxing, clinch, wrestle-when-I-have-to game, work against strawweights, it just didn't work. Even ones like, you know, Loma Lagunmi, who were, you know, especially big, but, you know, Kay Hansen, who's like a burly little ball of muscle, really, really bodied her. I get in the DePaula fight, I didn't see a whole different Jinyu Fry. I just saw Jinyu Fry against an opponent that her game would work against. Even though Ashley Yoder, her record in the UFC looks miserable on paper, she doesn't have any terrible losses. You know, Angela Hill, Lavinia Souza, you know, Mackenzie Dern, like there aren't. You, you they mean, are, sorry to interrupt. You, when you say terrible losses, you mean name value, not actual performance, though, because she's got okay. some bad performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know what you meant. I just want to make sure the listeners knew what you meant. Okay, yes. Like she doesn't have any bad looking losses. Some of the performances themselves were, were pretty rough. Uh, what Yoder does have going for her is like she's a very tall, long, rangy straw weight. And early in her UFC career, I mean, she was long and lanky, but obviously not terribly physically strong and kind of got bullied around by stronger straw weights, which would seem to be a pretty good recipe for Fry to have success against her. But she's kind of turned a corner on that. She used to be a one dimensional grappler with without much physical strength and just terrible striking i feel as though her striking has gotten a little better and she herself i don't know if she is actually just physically stronger or she's made improvements in her technique that just allow her to hold her own better but i'm with the odds here i think this is going to be another one where uh it's not going to be the fight of the night but you know fry is going to fight her game and just lose she's you know she's going to try to have a medium to slow pace kickboxing range from distance, and she's going to lose it against a, a rangier striker. Uh, and when she tries to clinch or tries to bring it to the ground, I'm not sure she's going to be able to, or I'm not sure she's going to be able to in the positions that will allow her to win rounds. I'm not going to say finish the fight because she's not a finisher and Yoder doesn't get finished. So give me Ashley Yoder, you know, probably in a two rounds to one decision and a fight that will have us just, you know, very, very eager for the next fight. Yeah, you said something. You said this is not going to be the fight of the night. I agree. No matter what the outcome is, if Yoda wins or Fry wins, it's going to probably be a really ugly, 
um, either either boring affair uh, that would probably favor Fry or sloppy affair that would probably favor Yoder. I'll start with Fry as you mentioned, former atom weight champion. She's very undersized. You said she's a a she looks like a superhero, but she's a mini one. Like I, I don't follow superhero movies, but I'm like. It was Ant Man a movie, right? Is there, is yeah, there Ant Man was a movie. <laughs> is there is there an Ant Woman? Is there like a... yeah, like she could be the Wasp who was like you know, oh that like the yeah. little sidekick girl. Yeah, or, yep. I shouldn't say. Oh, hold on, I shouldn't say girl. I, I mean woman. I I got roasted on the uh, we got roasted yeah. on our comments for saying uh, I called someone a girl. I didn't did not mean it uh, as an insult. I apologize to uh, whichever female fighters I was talking about last week. I must have called them girls. Uh, Back to Jin Fry, a a a woman in her own sense. Uh, she's a yeah southpaw counter striker. Can as you mentioned, she can be very trigger shy at times. Refuse especially when her opponent refuses to lead. She does not like to lead. She wants to counter, and that's because she has good good timing on her opponent's attacks. Like she's good. She's got good fast twitch muscles where she can land. You know, she's got pretty good hand speed. But like you mentioned. She likes to grind against the fence, which doesn't really fit her – what should fit her game. You talk about, like, Luma Labumi is smaller than Jinyu Fry and still beat her up in the clinch and out-muscled her in the clinch and beat her bad. Uh, she will – wrestling's probably a better part of her game. That's what she won last time. Uh, double and single-leg entries. On top, good top control. We saw that in the last fight against Gloria DePaulo. Looks to advance position when she's on the ground. Decent takedown defense if you try to take her down, but if you put her on her back, she does struggle to get up. Move the Ashley Yoder, also a southpaw, so that should be an interesting affair. You mentioned very big for the weight class. Her her boxing's very raw, um, and she really struggled with the speed of Angela Hill in her last fight, and that's because she has some. She's not a good athlete, but also she has some technical flaws. One, she keeps her chin high in the air. But I like that she throws a lot of kicks. And Jinyu Fry is not the one who's going to be moving around a lot. Jinyu Fry is going to stay in her face, and that kicks can be much more effective. But we talked about Jinyu Fry wanting to get in the clinch. That's also a, a position that Ashley Yoder is is probably the best part of her game is her clinch. Where she goes in there, she throws her knees, she gets some clinch uh, body lock takedowns. Uh, I hate that she constantly goes for that head and arm throw. She shouldn't do that against – well, one, she shouldn't do it against someone who's – much shorter than her in Junior Fry, but also uh, someone who wants to get the fight to the ground. Don't go for that. I think Fry is the better fighter. I really do. However, as you mentioned, you really stressed the size difference. I feel the same way. I think Yoda's going to be too big for her. I, I don't feel like a lot of confidence in picking Ashley Yoda's. I think she's, you know, one of the worst girls in the division. But I think there's going to be a lot of clinch fighting, and I think she's just going to be too much, like, too strong for. Uh, Jinyu Fry, I expect Yoda to control her against the cage, land some clinch striking. I think it's going to be a close fair, but I'm going to say Yoda wins by split decision. There you have uh, two picks for Ashley Yoder to get it done against Jinyu Fry. The UFC on ESPN 28 prelims power on in the featherweight division as Danny Chavez takes on Kai Kamaka. Chavez, the 34-year-old Floridian, is 11-4 overall. He's 1-1 one one in the UFC, uh, made his debut last August, taking a unanimous decision over T.J. Brown. He came back uh, this February and lost the unanimous decision to Jared Gordon. He's taking on Kamaka, the man who goes by the fighting Hawaiian, is 26-year-old, from Hawaii, of course. He's 8-4 and four overall. He's 1-2 and two in the UFC. 
won his own UFC debut last August over Tony Kelly by unanimous decision, and since then has dropped back-to-back fights against Jonathan Pierce, who knocked him out in the second round at UFC on ESPN Smith versus Clark last November, and TJ Brown, who took a split decision over Kamaka in May at UFC on ESPN Rays versus Prohaska. Uh, odds on this one are close to a pick'em, uh, but Kamaka is uh, minus 115. Chavez is out there minus 105 right now. Cannot quite get him at even money. Uh, Keith, we're talking about uh, two guys definitely in need of a win in the UFC. Are both these guys UFC material, and uh, who takes a step towards proving it on Saturday? Yeah, so I'll just the 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 line the line being pretty much a pick. I agree with that. Like I, I'm I'm not very confident in this pick either way. I I think both guys are UFC level, you know, lower UFC level, but you know they both show some talent. I'll start with Kamaka. He's well rounded. I like he good Kamaka is nonstop pressure. He's moving forward, good counter striking. Loves to get in the in the pocket and unload some big shots has good variety in his attacks. When he gets in there, you can see some hooks, you see some step in knees, teep kicks. We'll go to down to the body. I'd say he has plus power, not, not, you know, earth shattering power. Uh, he has a high guard defense where if he's on the outside, he can wrestle, he can, he can grapple. He's strong in the clinch. He's a former NCAA wrestler, nice takedowns. Uh, he has been taken down by weaker wrestlers though, which I'm surprised and he did slow down in his fight against Tony Kelly in his uh, that was I believe that was his UFC debut, mm-hmm. but that fight was like insane fight of the night. Uh, and, and I wouldn't be shocked if this this kind of goes the same route. Chavez is also a counter striker, so I'm really interested in who's going to lead this dance. Fast hands, a nice pop. He dropped T.J. Brown in, in his fight against that. Good timing, good at timing his opponent's attack, similar to what I was saying about Jin Yu Fry. He does throw everything hard, so he it's going to look like a lot like Julio Arce did last week where he was counter-striking, but not just tapping. Like he was unloading power shots every time Ula committed. Like That's something uh, Danny Chavez wants to do. I like that he throws kicks both to the body. He'll stick one up high. He'll go down low. Like It's all areas of the body. Uh, in the TJ Brown fight, a lot of leg kicks. Took out TJ Brown's power with the kicks. Dropped him with a few leg kicks. He has some wrestling of his own, good entries. He showed good takedown defense against TJ Brown in his debut. He is a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, though he doesn't have a submission win on his record. Um, I've seen him slow down. I wrote this last time when we were breaking on this fight against TJ Brown. I see him slow down in the regional scene, but he looked much better against TJ Brown. However, then his follow-up fight uh, against... Who am I? What is this? Uh, who was Jared, oh, Gordon. George, Jared Gordon? He looked like crap. Like he looked fantastic against TJ Brown, and he looked terrible. Like he was like he was stuck in in first gear against Jared Gordon. So it's just really tough. Um, I can't get past Kamaka's loss to Jonathan Pierce. I felt like Jonathan Pierce was a good stylistic matchup for Kamaka, and then he looked terrible. But then I also felt like Jared Gordon was a good stylistic matchup for Danny Chavez. Emmett Math doesn't work. But in this case, I'm just going to go with it. Chavez beat TJ Brown. TJ Brown beat Kamaka, whether you you, know, you believe with the split decision or not. Chavez leg kicks stands out to me most of, of when I break down the skills. I say he chops down Kamaka's legs, and I say I actually say he gets a stoppage after you know late in the you know chops his legs and lands something with his hands. I'll say Chavez by third round TKO and a very slight upset. 
I'm glad that you seem to be having as hard a time picking this one as me. Uh, Danny Chavez has just been playing with my emotions for like a full year now. When he came in and debuting as TJ Brown, I was like, okay, this guy, he takes like a year and a half, two years off at a time. He's debuting in the UFC at like age 33. Some of his, like, it's rare that you find a fighter who's fought, who's come up with like 10 or more fights in the United States and you can't find half of his regional fights. Like, you know, I remember there were just a couple of his fights that just flat out, they weren't on YouTube. They weren't anywhere. It's like, where have you been fighting and who? That nobody in the building even had an iPhone. And then he came in. He looked so good against Brown. I was like, okay, well, this is one of the surprises of the year. And then he looked awful against Gordon. So, yeah, he's definitely been playing with my emotions. Uh, I feel as though uh, Chavez's power, you know, as you mentioned, like just his punch power and then uh, the damage he can do with leg kicks are his best tools against Kamaka. Kamaka's best tools probably are the pace he can put on and his offensive wrestling against Chavez's defensive wrestling. Uh, I can totally see, you know, Chavez just starting to rack up damage with, uh, with leg kicks and getting a finish late. Like you're picking. I am going to go the other way, just acknowledging that those are the weapons that are on the table. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go with, with Kamaka to just, you know, throw more volume, land more shots, even if they aren't as hard, maybe get a few opportune takedowns and not get himself guillotined. Uh, and I'm going to take Kamaka to take a decision as the very slight favorite. Next up, the lightweights take the cage as it is Chris Gritzmacher versus Rafa Garcia. Gritzmacher, the 35-year-old Arizonan, is 14-4 and four overall. He's 2-3 and three in the UFC. Uh, fought most recently on the UFC's Halloween Fight Night card last October, where he not or got knocked out by Alexander Hernandez in the first round. Uh, previous to that, he had absolutely brutalized uh, Joe Lozon into a corner stoppage between rounds all the way back in April 2018. So long layoff uh, for Gritzmacher. Uh, he'll be taking on Garcia, the... 26-year-old Mexican who plied his trade almost exclusively in combate up until his UFC debut in March is 11-1 and overall. That one was his UFC debut, which he lost via unanimous decision to Nazrat Haqparast at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad. Uh, Garcia, a strong favorite here. He is minus 275. You can get Gritzmacher at plus 230 or plus 235 as the underdog. I understand the line here. I was excited when Garcia signed with the UFC. He was basically probably Combate's best prospect. Like, maybe not their best fighter, period, though he might have been that as well. But just their best prospect is in someone they brought in, home grew. He was still in his mid-20s. He was a great get for the UFC. And I just think Nazareth Hakparast was a really, really tough ask in his first uh, in his UFC debut. Like, I still think on talent, Hak Paras is probably a top 15 lightweight. And, yeah, it just it, it wasn't a great look for him. Maybe that's a fight that goes differently in a couple of years once Garcia gets some seasoning against UFC-level opposition. Uh, Gritzmacher, he fights exactly like a guy whose name is Gritzmacher Wood and who whose nickname is Gritz. He yeah. is a gritty dude. You You look at him. 
I mean, he's obviously strong. You look at him, he's built like a tank, but he is not a plus athlete by the standards of the UFC lightweight division. You know, slow on his feet. Hands are pretty slow. Um, he is just a straight-up kind of mid-level UFC roster guy at this point, and it's, I, I think Garcia is just going to be a, a bad uh, matchup for him. I expect that Garcia will get this to the ground and either pound him out or more likely tap him out. I'm going to go with Garcia by second-round submission. Yeah, so I, I think your breakdown of Chris Marks using his name was perfect because he's he's not a good athlete. He's not very technical. He's kind of slow. He's very aggressive. Uh, he's high output. He he understands that his best bet is to make it a brawl and see if his chin holds up more than his opponents. But he lacks power. He's not a big cracker. He does have some nice elbows, and he's he is mean. Like if you can get in the clinch, he can beat you up. Uh, with elbows and, and knees and stuff, but he keeps his chin. The lows on fight, dude. It was yeah. so just such a beating. Yeah, he keeps his chin high in the air uh, as a big target. Lacks head movement. Doesn't check leg kicks. I'd say he's a decent topside grappler, though he's a very average takedown guy. He's 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 not gonna take down many, you know, anybody with a wrestling background. And I'm worried about his chin. I mean, his last fight, Alex Hernandez was teeing off on him, and then. Brutally knocked him out where he like felt like crawled underneath his legs. It was it was it was a scary one. Garcia, I'd also say that he's not a great athlete. He's flat footed, but he's also very aggressive. He just marches down his opponent. He was I mean he was mar- marching down um, Hawk for us. That, that, not the best strategy, but you know he, he he wasn't intimidated. He kept moving forward. He wants to throw it out in the pocket, which is actually gives Grusmacher a chance. He throws wide looping punches. He tends to leap into his shots, kind of closing distance with his leaping shots. But he has some good power. He will shoot for a takedown himself. He's relentless to get him. However, as I said last time, I think his shots are a little ugly. He he kind of overreaches and, and ducks his head, and he's got to get a knee or or get guillotined by a, a really good grappler, not Grootsmacher. I do like his chin. Oh, actually, well, hold on. So the reason why he gets it, not only does he duck, but he, he'll just – Basically, rush you to get to the cage, and he's strong enough where you just pull you out. Uh, I do like his chin, though. He ate some huge shots from Hawk Ross and just kept moving forward. And he had the cardio to back it up. Like he he was going strong in the third round. It's you know it's harder in the third round than in the first round. So Garcia's a negative. Would you say negative three hundred or so favorite? Uh, like two fifty. Two fifty. I, I, uh, when I looked today, when I was writing my notes, it was negative three hundred. It might be two fifty now. And, and that's simply because Grismacher isn't good. I think Rafi beats him up on the feet or the ground. I think I think he I agree with you. I think he might get it to the ground. I actually think he gets a submission too. Give me Garcia by second round submission. There you go. Two picks for Rafa Garcia to get things back on track by second round submission. Next up at UFC Vegas 33, it is a contender series delight as featherweights Colin Anglin and Melsic Bagdasarian prepare to square off. Anglin, the 28-year-old from Michigan, is 8-1 overall. Uh, he fought at Dana White's Contender Series last September, where he took a unanimous decision over Muhammad John Naimov. Uh, he's taking on Bagdasarian. The Armenian, by way of Glendale, California, is 29 years old, 5-1 overall. 
uh, fought also last September on the Contender Series where he took a unanimous decision over Dennis Bazookia. Uh, his, a bit of a strange career as he had a single one-off fight when he was like 22 years old, disappeared from MMA for five years, uh, apparently took some uh, kickboxing fights. He came back in 2019, won four fights in a total of about 60 seconds to get that Contender Series call. Uh, I will throw this one to you, Keith, but, you know, when I hear an Armenian last name and Glendale Fight Club, all I have to ask is, are we going to see any head movements in the octagon? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, give me the pronunciation again, See, because you know you're the pronunciation guy. Melsic Bagdazarian. Bakhtazarian. All right. I, I'll start with him because I'll, I'll tip my tongue. This guy, had Bakhtazarian, has both professional and kickboxing experience. That's why he was big leg layoff. He was doing the kickboxing scene. Fought in K1, fought in the L, uh, WLF World Kickboxing Championship. As you mentioned, trains in Glendale Fight Club, which it seems like every Armenian fighter does. But prior to the Dana White Contender Series, though, he has faced really low-level competition. I mean, you look at his wins. He's got four wins. This is the times. Seven seconds, nine seconds, 14 seconds, and 32 seconds. Uh, I don't know if that talks about his striking or his level of competition, but it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, you can give anyone a tomato can. If you knock him out in seven seconds, that's still really, really – I mean, unless it's, you know, me fighting Francis Ngano, it's it's – everything else is pretty impressive. So – uh, he's very fast. You know, when you when you see film, you basically have to go off of the contender series other than the less than a minute combined for the, for the four fights. But what I've seen is very fast, extremely accurate, hits very hard. His left hand is is a kill switch. It's, it's deadly. Incredible quick high kick. He hasn't shown me anything on the ground yet, and he did slow a little bit in on the contender series fight. Actually, I thought he slowed a lot. Um, and that might be a little bit of the jitters, a little bit of going, I don't know, going past 32 seconds in his career. It might be a little bit of combination. But move over to England. England was a guy that I liked in the contender series. Uh, he recently started training with Factory X, which I like, even though his home team of Scorpion Fight System, I think, is an uprising team. Uh, he beat Muhammad John Namov, as you said, on the contender series. That's a really good win. That's a good prospect to beat. He's elusive, good footwork, good boxing. His left hook is is a really good developed tool. Uh, I think he's got some good power. He moves a lot, but when he wants to set an attack for the power shots, he'll plant his feet and land the power shots, almost whipping his punches with great force. He can get a little wild at times, and he makes a mistake of just pulling his head straight back to avoid strikes and also stays on the center line, which is a problem considering most of his punches come from weird angles because he throws from his hips. But... He's got a good kicking game, hard kicks to the body. I saw him finish an opponent on on the regional scene with body shots, sneaky high kick himself. I love that he will fake a shot and then throw it overhand. That's actually when I was training. I used to do that a lot myself. To do that, you have to be a takedown threat. And England is. He's not an elite wrestler, or even I don't know if you'd even categorize a wrestler, but he's a, he's enough of a takedown artist that that opens up his striking. Good. Uh, he's more of a sprawl and brawl striker like he wants to he wants to keep it on the feet but he's got good enough takedown defense to keep it there uh but i've seen him fade late in fights which is an issue now i like both these guys obviously i know a lot more about england's game than i do against for uh, i'm gonna try not pushing his name Bagdazarian. perfect uh however i haven't seen flaws in Bagdazarian striking i've seen some flaws in england's 
But then, obviously, you say, hey, Keith, but what, what about his ground game? I mean, we see him when he lost early in his career. He was him, like you said, it was forever ago. But England should come out wrestling. That That's the, probably his advantage. But I don't think he does. And if you get wild against a guy that is dangerous as Bagdazarian, there's a very good chance he puts you out. And I think that's might what happens. And I'm going to say Bagdazarian keeps his knockout, like, resume going and gets another first round well i know he hold on i know he got a, a decision on the contender series but i'm saying like he had another highlight reel knockout give me about design by first round ko but that said like even though i'm taking a first round ko i like england's like i'm not dogging that guy like i i think he's a good addition to the usc roster I mean, you obviously are much more familiar with both these guys games than i am one thing that i i'm thinking after what i've seen of them and I've seen of Bagdasarian, like, literally only his Contender Series appearance. I've seen a little more of Anglin. The Sherdog Fight Finder has Anglin listed at 5'9 and Bagdasarian at 5'8. I have the feeling that when they square off on Friday at weigh-ins, or when they get in the cage together, there's going to be a lot more than a one-inch height difference between them. I have the feeling Anglin's going to look a lot bigger. And, I mean, that's not uncommon. Like, we, you know... We're not out there with a tape measure at Sure Dog, like you know, asking for, like you know, I don't, I don't see Adrian Yanez on <laughs> at Fury on Sunday. Be like, dude, can you stand against the wall and let me, like you know, get the tape measure real quick? We, we take what don't we give get from Jay Petri the idea. Don't give Jay Petri because Jay will do that. Jay, <laughs> Jay, Jay, Jay is, yeah, like if 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 there's a fighter around Jay Petri, I can see Jay like making sure his our reach is accurate. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just kind of eyeball it because Jay knows he's exactly six feet tall. He's yeah. like, yeah, I, and it happens even at the highest levels. I mean, uh, Shane Carwin went from 6'5 to 6'1 while on UFC roster as, like, we finally realized how badly, you know, they had been, like, pumping up his height. But I have the feeling England's going to be quite a bit bigger. Uh, I'm at, you know, just on pure hunch, I'm going to go with England on this one. I don't think, you know, I, I'm I'm going to count on him to not run into uh, – Bogdazarian's like kill shot uh, power and just be able to take a decision over him. But I might be wrong in about seven seconds. The feature prelim of UFC on ESPN 28 is a bantamweight matchup between former flyweight champ Nico Montano and Yanan Wu. Montano, the 32 year old Arizonan, is four and three overall. She's one and one in the UFC, uh, having fought just twice in the. Uh, nearly four years since she joined uh, the promotion. She fought most recently in July of 2019, dropping a unanimous decision to Juliana Pena at Bantamweight. Uh, previous to that, you have to go all the way back to the Tough 26 finale in December of 2017, where she became the UFC's inaugural women's flyweight champion by taking a unanimous decision over Roxanne Mataferi. She'll be taking on Wu. The 25-year-old Chinese fighter is 11-4 overall, she is one and three in the UFC. Uh, her lone UFC victory all the way back in November of 2018, uh, a first round armbar of Lauren Mueller. Uh, around that, she has lost to Gina Mazzani, Mizuki Inoue, and Jocelyn Edwards all by decision. Uh, odds on this one favor Montano fairly heavily. She is minus 220, where you can get Wu at plus 185. Uh, Keith, we were talking about this off air just before we started recording this segment, and you just asked flat out, is Nico Montano the most hated fighter by the UFC, not the most hated by fans, but the most 
the UFC's own most hated fighter ever. I mean, she's she was a champ two fights ago, and she's like on an undercard right now. She combines a lot of things that the UFC hates into one package. Being injured a lot, uh, missing weight, and not being in terribly exciting fights. I mean, that that's that's three strikes. You can get away with any one of those, and the UFC will carry you. But, yeah, the disrespect, man. Can, Why is this fight on the undercard? Yeah, can we go back five years ago? Five, six years ago? Everything, sure. you, just, everything you just said, you could have said about Habib Namagomedov. Injured a lot, trouble making weight, not always the most exciting fights. Absolutely true. <laughs> I mean, they, they are more the case for Montano. Yeah, yeah, Like, she missed years at a time and actually missed sure. weight or actually, you know, like, sent herself to the hospital during fight week. But, yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, I just like want to... Yeah. So, Nico Montano, I mean, you talk about the drop-off. Two fights ago, she won the title. She never lost the title. She fought Julian Payne in a close fight who is now fighting for the title. And now she's on upper a weight class. Upper weight class. Yeah. Now she's on the prelims. Like that's insanity to me. Like this, she's not on a five fight losing streak. You know, she's on a one fight losing streak. She's a ultimate fighter winner. She's a former champion. I actually like that she's not facing like a highly ranked opponent. Like I actually like that. Can, can I interject one thing real quick? Sure. Sure. That's what I was going to say. That's the only thing that makes me think they have any tiny bit of love left for Montano. If they really wanted her gone, like she'd be fighting, you know, Claudia Gadelia or somebody. Yeah. The, and just the, getting punted by somebody who's not even ranked. Yeah. The problem is, is, is if you put her against a ranked fighter, she might win. Then what do you it, do? Yeah. What do you do? So it's, it's one of those. I just, there had to be a lot more behind the scenes than we know of because. I just I've never seen a champion like get the treatment that that she has. Um, I mean, I get it. She hasn't she fought once in four years. Like that's really bad. So mm -hmm. with that said, being that she hasn't she's only fought once in four years, we really don't know what to expect from her moving forward. Um, she hasn't fought in two years. I, I was looking at her uh, her booked fight. She's pulled out of or either her fight. Either she pulled out or just the fight got canceled for some reason. Seven out of her last eight book fights. So I understand there's probably a lot of frustration there. So let's talk about her skill set. And I have to base it off of basically what we last saw of her. Because I have no idea what we see. Like, she could be as good as she last was or she could be completely shot. We don't know. But she's southpaw. She on the feet. She has a kind of herky-jerky, unorthodox striking style. She switches stances a lot. Her boxing is pretty raw. But I like her kicks. She throws a lot of kicks, hard kicks, and she's a good grappler. She's strong in the clinch. I mean, we go back to the her last fight, Juliana Pena. She had a lot of success out muscling Juliana Pena in the clinch. And, and think what you want about Juliana Pena. Like that's quite an accomplishment to out muscle Juliana Pena. She's a good she's a good wrestler, Nico Montagna. She's good at winning scrambles. If she's on top, she's got solid top pressure. The first round against Julian Penn, she kept her pinned against the, the canvas the whole time. Um, she looks to advance to a better position on top. If she's on bottom, she does struggle to get up, and that's what lost her the fight um, against Julian Penn. But that was a really close fight that wasn't decided to the very end. Now, Wu, Wu's big for the weight class. Like that, That's the one thing that stands out. She's, she's not a small girl. And mind you, Montagna was the champion in the weight class below that. So... 
she's not much of an athlete. She's kind of slow. Um, she's uh, she's she's very trigger shy at times. Uh, not not the, the biggest output. Uh, she's I'd say she's also a pretty raw boxer, though. I like her feints. She uses a lot of feints, but she lacks head movement. Has decent uh, kicks. She's she's not a she's not a great wrestler at all. Um, but she is a submission threat. Like she submit, submitted Lauren Mueller. Uh, she almost caught Mizuki Inoue in a standing guillotine. So there's some things you like that. Like this is not a complete wash from Montagna on the ground. But that said, as far as prediction goes, this is a huge step down in competition for Montagna. I think Wu is the probably the perfect stylistic matchup other than maybe getting caught in a submission or if she's just completely shot as a fighter. I expect her to get some takedowns. I think she beats up Wu. I eventually think she gets a uh, grind and pound TKO. I say it happens in the second round. I think Montana is much better fighter than she gets credited for. And I think she gets a lot of hate from the UFC, but I also like fans tend to hate her. The whole Valentina Shevchenko thing, whether she was scared of her and she pulled out and all this stuff. It, like regardless of that, she's a good fighter, and I think she smashes Wu. I'm with you here. Assuming that the time off and the injuries have not just completely compromised her, she should have enormous advantages in strength and athleticism here. Uh, the the other side of Nico Montano's underrated achievements or dismissed achievements is that in Roxanne Modafferi, she had about the most advantageous style matchup you can imagine for her because she's a strong woman, good uh, wrestler and savvy grappler. It was almost a guarantee that she was either going to box up Modafferi on the feet and Roxanne couldn't get her down, or she was going to take Roxanne down and park in top position and just fight off submission and sweep attempts. She has a lot of those same advantages over Wu. Just Wu is one of those fighters. She's tall for the division, but she is not physically strong. And yeah, unless Montaigne is completely broken, I think she's just going to kind of pick her up, fling her on the ground and start mauling her. I'm not going to pick the finish just because Wu has proven fairly durable, even as she's been overwhelmed by other fighters. And Montaigne has not been a finisher either, even when she's had, you know, substantial advantages over her opponents. So I'm just going to say it's a one-sided decision. But yeah, I have Montano big in this one as well. And maybe if the UFC doesn't absolutely hate this woman, then maybe it's at least a wait and see fight. Okay, let's get her a winnable fight. Let her win it. You know, see if she doesn't take another 18 months off with injury and, and we can go from there. Because, you know, whether they like her or not, they can use contenders in both of the divisions in which she has uh, competed. The main card of UFC Vegas 33 kicks off with a welterweight matchup and immediate fight of the night contender in Brian Barbarena versus Jason Witt. Barbarena, the 32-year-old uh, Minnesotan by way of Arizona, I believe it is, is 15-7 and seven overall. He is 6-5 and five in the UFC. Uh, fought most recently last September, taking a unanimous decision over Anthony Ivey. That snapped a two-fight losing streak for him in 2019, where he lost to Randy Brown and Vicente Luque, both by third-round TKO. He'll be taking on Witt. The man who goes by the Vanilla Gorilla is a 34-year-old fighting out of Glory MMA and Fitness. He is 18-7 and seven overall. He's 1-2 and two in the UFC. Fought most recently back in March, where he got one punch starched. 
by Matthew Semmelsberger at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad. Uh, previous to that, he fought twice for the UFC in 2020, uh, choking out Cole Williams on the uh, Halloween Fight Night card and getting knocked out in just 48 seconds by Takashi Sato at his debut at UFC on ESPN Poirier versus Hooker. Barbarina, strong favorite here, minus 260. Uh, you can get Wit at plus 225 as the underdog if you like. Uh, Keith, there's a pattern here. Jason Witt, he wins or, or he gets knocked out in less than a minute. Is either of those your pick for this uh, fight? And if not, what is your pick? Well, I'll do this. I won't give you the answer to both of them because I don't want to uh, give away my pick. But I'll say him getting knocked out in under a minute is not my pick. So I'll say that. So, Barbarino, I, I, if you go back to our recap show, when I was describing Darren Elkins, I gave him a new nickname. I'm not going to say this now, but make sure you check that out. Uh, the same nickname could fit really good with Brian Barbarino. I, 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 he has that personality. I, I love Brian Barbarino as a fighter. He's just he's, – he's got every single ounce of athleticism he has. Like, he's drained – all the talent on it. He got like every bit of talent he he has. He's got it all. Like he's maximized it. And I just love guys like that. Yeah. So he's a southpaw, high output striker, just stays in your face the entire fight. Pressure counter striker. He's a guy that we talk about high output. But we also talk about a guy like that uses cardio as a weapon. Like cardio is a tool for him. Uh, he's gonna outpace you. He's gonna outwork you. Uh, he pressures you, but he has a slip and rip style. Like he's gonna pressure you, force you to throw slips you're gonna throw a jab he's gonna counter with like a four punch combination if he gets in close he's he's got a mean attitude he's looking for knees in there he's looking for slicing elbows i think he's got underrated power uh especially when he, he i also think he has underrated intelligence like he's not just a brawler he's got some good technique and he, he like he targets the body he, he understands like what wins rounds what wins fights he'll sneak in a takedown in a close round to make sure he secures that Good ground and pound. He he's a weak defensive wrestler, um, and I, I I don't know if I should say he's a weak defensive wrestler or if it's more on who he's faced. Like Kobe Covington took him down a whole bunch of times. Leon Edwards took him down a whole bunch of times. But then Anthony Ivey took him down a couple of times. So that's when I'm like, hmm, is he a weak defensive wrestler? But what I like though, there's a reason why Kobe Covington had so many takedowns against him because Brian Barbarino worked himself right back to his feet which is really impressive. And he's a submission threat. Uh, he only has two submission wins on his career, but he, he uses submissions. Like he can, he can put you out with the, you know, most of his submissions go off for attack in the head, darts, chokes, guillotines, but he uses those to win a position. Like he'll lock in a, a darts choke, catch you to roll where then he's suddenly on top. My one biggest concern about him. And this is my biggest concern for anybody that has Barbarino style is the amount of damage they've taken over the years. Like eventually that catches up to everybody. Like suddenly Diego Sanchez, went from the most insane, durable guy to, wow, Diego Sanchez is getting knocked out. That's why I feel like Barbara. I'm not saying that's going to happen now. I'm just saying, like, that day is going to come. Uh, move over to it. Not very athletic. Kind of stiff. Flat-footed. Hands are, are pretty slow. He he tries to make it up also by being a pressure fighter. Does also target the body. He hit His kicks are pretty hard, but he keeps his chin high in the air. I like that he fakes his wrestling shots to set up his hands, which I like. Like he something similar. I was talking about Colin, uh, Colin Anglin. He does the same thing, but he also will look for takedowns and he's extremely strong. I go back to the Cole Williams fight where he 
picked him up, walked him across the entire cage before Slam kind of Matt Hughes, Frank Trigg style, Frank Trigg too. Uh, heavy top control. He kind of has the old school Tito Ortiz style where I said, or Mark Coleman, where he wants you to sit in your guard, keep your pinned against you. Every time you go to move on your, you know, heavy pressure back down on your hips, kind of, or back down on your shoulders, try to, you know, keep your shoulders pinned up against the cage. And he did get a submission against Coleman's. But when he goes against a guy who's much better athlete, things got to happen to him, like what happened in the last fight where Matt Summersberger like knocked him into another di- dimension. So as far as prediction goes, I really feel like this is Barbarino's fight to win. Nobody outpressures Barbarino, and that's usually how Witt wins. I expect Barbarino to stop enough takedowns from Witt. He might get taken down one or two times, but I think he'll uh, he'll get he'll work himself back up and probably tire out Witt and then just outwork Witt on the feet. I expect it to look a lot like the Anthony Ivey fight where Anthony Ivey was looking to wrestle, but either his takedowns were stopped or kind of useless where Barbarino just popped right back up. And then I just expect as the fight goes deeper on that Barbarino just starts widening the gap uh, of, you know, in the output and, and got his lead in the fight. I don't know if he gets him out, but uh, I say he does. I say Barbarino gets a stoppage. I'll say third round TKO. Outstanding. I, I love the way you broke down Barbarina's game. I, I found that over the last couple of years, I've started to think of him in my mind as kind of uh, poor man's Bilal Muhammad, where his reputation as an exciting action fighter kind of belies how intelligent he is. You know, it, it's you know, like he's he's like aggressive, but never to his own detriment. It's not like he's like, you know turned a fight into a wild scrap and then ended up losing to somebody he should have beaten. All the people who have beaten him are just people who are better at the things he does. Uh, he has a reputation as a knockout artist, but as you say, it's more because of his pace than because of numbing power. Like, except for a very extremely shot Jake Ellenberger, all of Barbarina's knockouts are, you know, from an accumulation of damage, he gets a guy going on his heels, he swarms, and it's over. It's not like Semmelsberger over Wit, where he just flatlined with one shot. Uh, Wit, I mean, this guy could be in the dictionary just under the entry for, like, you know, Midwestern grinder. And he could be in the dictionary as, like, the definition for Midwestern grinder, if even in the dictionary from, like, 2008. Like, there's a certain old-school just barely post tough feel about, you know, Jason Witt. He's a guy that if he was 10 years older, he would have been a guy that just, you know, racked up a dozen fights in the UFC from 2006 to 2009. You know, you're like, oh, really? This guy was seven and five in the UFC? You know, that that kind of guy. But yeah, a, a definite disadvantage against Barbarini here. I, I agree with you. Uh, he doesn't have enough of a wrestling advantage. I don't think to put this fight where he wants it to go. And if it goes to the ground, there's every possibility. Like, like you said, Barbarina is, he's a sneaky, intelligent, efficient grappler. He grapples in a way that it serves to help him win the fight instead of win the grappling match. Like you always love to talk about guys who want to play jujitsu. You know, they have jujitsu, but you know, terrible takedowns or terrible takedown defense, or they're too willing to just jump guard with a guillotine or too willing to spend half a round on their back instead of, you know, trying to get back up. Barbarina is the opposite of that. You know, his grappling is a tool for him to win the round or get in the position to win the fight. Uh, so we might even see, you know, Barbarina out grappling wit on the ground. And if we do that, then we get to see one of my favorite things ever, which is seeing James Krause just absolutely lose his shit in the corner. Cause there are few things like angrier than 
uh, James Krause watching one of his fighters get out grappled. You can tell he just wants to climb in the cage himself and show how it's done. That might happen uh, on Saturday as well. But I have Barbarina. I have him big time. I don't know about a finish. I'm going to go ahead and call this one uh, Barbarina by decision. But I think it, it's going to be a frustrating night for Jason Witt. Next up, it is a possible pink slip derby as Ryan Benoit takes on Zaruk Adashev in a matchup of flyweights on two fight losing streaks. Benoit, the 31-year-old Texan, is 10-7 and overall. He's 3-5 and in the UFC. He has lost two in a row. Uh, most recently, he dropped a close unanimous decision to Tim Elliott in, at UFC on ESPN Cater versus Ige last July. Prior to that, he lost a split decision to Alatang Haile at UFC Fight Night Edgar versus Korean Zombie in December of 2019. Uh, he's taking on Adashev, the 28-year-old Uzbekistani by way of Brooklyn, is 3-3 three and three in his young mixed martial arts career. He's 0-2 in the UFC uh, since debuting last summer. He lost his debut to Tyson Nam, getting one punch knocked out in uh, 32 seconds at UFC on ESPN I versus Calvillo. He came back in January and dropped a unanimous decision to Sumu Darji at uh, UFC on ESPN Chiesa versus Magni. Benoit is the slight favorite here. He's minus 130, where Adashev is uh, plus 110 as the underdog. Uh, Keith, you were mentioning off-air that you think uh, Benoit is a little better than his UFC mark uh, might indicate, uh, and that you even thought he won the Tim Elliott fight. I mean, just jump from there. You know, tell me what you're thinking about him and how you're feeling about this fight. Yeah, so I had to take a second because I was trying to find my notes on them. The problem is I was looking at the prelims where I, this fight probably should have been, and then I, <laughs> and then I realized we're on the main card. Um, yeah, Benoit, I do, I do think he's better than his record. I mean, he's faced some good competition. I mean, he he's got a win over Sergio Pettis, like that's obviously aged very well. You know, now that he's the Bellator champion, uh, his last fight against Tim Elliott, like I said, I thought he won. Like I, I, I might scream robbery or, or anything like that, but you know, I scored it for him. He's a wrestle boxer who doesn't wrestle enough. Uh, he's very athletic. He fights out of both stances. I think his boxing is tight, solid head movement. He he sets up his attacks with feints very well. He's got a beautiful jab. Uh, but one of his biggest issues is he tends to throw single strikes instead of throwing combinations. And uh, he can get outworked because of that. But he's got good power in both of his hands. I like that he will target the body. He throws – I noticed when – as I said, he fights in both stances. He throws a lot more kicks, and he's got good kicks, but he throws a lot more kicks from the southpaw stance. I love his dipping high kick. Like He has that Robert Whitaker dip to one side and throw the high kick on the other side, something that we talk about Teacher Dillashaw does a lot. He knocked out Askin Mokhtarian with that height with the same high kick we're, we're talking about. He likes space, though. Like He wants to work from space, and he hated the pressure from Tim Elliott, which is – even more impressive to me that like he fought a, he was forced to fight a Tim Elliott style fight and still like which I think is the best stylistic match for him and still won in, in my opinion. Um, but one thing that he has an issue with is like a lack of urgency and refusal to at times to turn up. Like there was times he had Tim Elliott like he caught him with a clean shot and probably should have. If Tim Elliott take, is taking a step back, you probably have him hurt. Like you don't see Tim Elliott ever take if he's got to step step back and regather himself. You should be turning up right then. He has a wrestling background. Like I said, he hardly ever uses it. He more uses it to in the, in takedown defense. Like he's got a good strong takedown defense. And, it, and 
even when Tim Elliott got on his hips, he created some great scrambles, kept the kept the uh, what do they call? They just kept the movement going, and um, I thought he showed that great against Tim Elliott. Now move over to Adashev. I, I know I'm saying his wrong his name wrong. I apologize. Uh, Southpaw. However, he also switches stances a lot, so we might see a lot of that going on. Uh, a lot of foot battling between these two. He's a counter striker. He tends to fight and burst though. Uh, he has the, an in and out style. He wants to be all the way out and then suddenly kind of come in the pocket and blitz into the pocket and then throw down. Um, he's willing to kind of brawl in the pocket. He has like winging overhand shots. Like he throws it from both the southpaw and the orthodox stance. He just kind of comes in and he throws this winging shot. He does hit hard. I'll give him that. But he's very heavy on his front foot, leaving open the calf strikes. And uh, he really struggled in his last fight against Sumajari's reach. He did mix in a takedown, which, like, last time we broke down film, I said, I don't know anything about his ground game because I didn't see anything on the regional scene. And then he was getting knocked out too quick in the UFC, didn't know anything. But he did get a takedown in his last fight, which I liked. And then when he, he actually got the takedown, he landed some power shots. So I actually feel much better about him moving forward, like, even though he got absolutely destroyed by Sumajari. Like, I think his skill set is – I have more respect for him than I did heading into that fight. That says – like I said, I think Benoit's better than his record is. It says, I think he knocks Adashev out. Like, he's got the power. I've seen Adashev get knocked out before. Give me Benoit by first round knockout. I know Benoit is is the favorite, but he's not. Uh, he, what's, what's the line? He's not a huge favorite. Minus 130. 130. Like, I think he yeah. should be bigger than that. I, I know some of that has to do with his record and, and maybe the unknown of Adashev. But I'm going to give my best bet right now. I think Ryan Benoit is that. As I always like to say, if you're betting – Please bet responsible. Don't bet your mortgage. But if you want to put a, a little cheddar out there, this is the fight I would pick. I'm I'm glad you see it this way. Uh, I don't know if Benoit is better than his record, though. I do think both the uh, Elliot and the uh, Alatang Haile fights were like really close. He definitely is what he is at this point. You know, like he's had a couple of enormous layoffs, so he hasn't developed you know, as much as I thought he might have, like looking at him like five years ago. But whatever he is now, I do think it's too much for Adashev. Uh, <clears throat> Tom Feely, who writes the official previews for SureDog, he said this uh, ahead of, I think, Adashev's last fight, that this might be the, you know, rawest fighter, you know, I, I've ever seen join the UFC, just in terms of just how little MMA experience he has and just how little his game has developed. So... If he sticks around, like, we have no idea what kind of fighter he might look like in a, a couple of years. He has some basic tools, uh, and he has some athleticism, but this is not the fight for him. Like like you said, his tendency to want to fight and burst and kind of pounce into the pocket against a guy like Benoit, who he is a almost patient to a fault uh, uh, counter-striker, is going to cost him. He's going to get hit. He's going to get rung up. Uh, I don't know if... Uh, Benoit will get the finish, but I'm going to go ahead and call it just because I've been calling way too many decisions on this card. So I have that gambler's fallacy that, like, you know, if the roulette wheel hasn't hit hit red in a couple spins, it must be due for it. So we're due for a finish here. Give me Benoit by uh, second round TKO. Next up, it is a last-minute rebooking at welterweight as Nicholas Stolza takes on Jared Gooden. Uh, Stolza? The 28-year-old German is 12-4 and 4 overall. 
He's 0-1 in the UFC, uh, debuted last July at UFC on ESPN, Whitaker versus Till, and dropped a unanimous decision to Ramazan Ameev. Uh, he'll be taking on Gooden, who stepped up on just uh, day's notice. The fight was confirmed on Tuesday of fight week. But the man who goes by Night Train, a 27-year-old uh, from Georgia, is 17-6 and overall. He is 0-2 in the UFC, uh, dropped his debut to Alan Joban by unanimous decision back at UFC 255, came back in March at UFC 260, and lost a unanimous decision to Abubakar Nurmagomedov. Odds on this one, because the fight was just booked, are all over the place. Uh, case in point, when I looked Wednesday morning, you could find each guy as uh, the underdog. It seems to be kind of coalescing now, and what you're seeing is uh, Stolta as a mild favorite around minus 175, minus 180. You can still get good in as high as like plus 145 uh, as of, you know, Wednesday. Keith, this was originally booked as Nicholas Stolza versus uh, Munir Lazez. That was floating around the undercard and the main card. And for a minute, when the Dawkins fight got dropped, it was even rumored to be the co-main event for a while. You and I seem to be in agreement in that that was not a good matchup for Nicholas Stolza. I mean, he seemed really indignant and you know, kind of went after Lazez for dropping off, but he might have dodged a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he did. Um, I didn't go, like, I actually started breaking down Stolza after that fight was canceled like it was more just the way i went down my list it, i didn't get to that fight yet but pre-tape study i was leaning towards Lazes. fairly confident too what i'll say about both these guys is that okay yeah neither of them has won a single fight in the ufc yet stoltz is zero and one gooden's zero and two but all three fights have been against good welterweights and yeah. they've all been against the type of fighters that were built to deny these guys the fight, the kind of fight that they really wanted to have. Like, if nothing else, a fight with uh, Munir Lazez was going to give Nicholas Stolta the chance to try out his, like, rangy kickboxing and see if he could take down a kickboxer and outgrapple him. I, I wasn't going to pick him to do it, but it was going to be a, a chance to fight his fight. Uh, same thing with Gooden. Like, he wants to be, uh, you know, uh, a distance kickboxer. And neither Alan Joban nor Abubakar Nurmagomedov would let him have that kind of fight. So this should be a lot more fun fight, I think, to watch than, you know, the original matchup or any of the more rumored matchups. I am still hanging on to the notion that Jared Gooden is better than his uh, UFC appearances have looked. And I don't know if that's based on actual science from the, you know, the regional fights of his I watched or just based on how promising his individual tools look in flashes during the fight, like as he's able to uncork individual strikes, you know, before he gets crowded or countered and things like that. So I'm going to toss this uh, to you to, to give me the X's and O's, but I'm leaning good in this one. Cause I, I still am feeling like he just, he needs like a, a breakout fight. He's, you know, he was matched in the UFC, like tough right off the bat. Uh, Alan Joban, just a veteran guy that's, tough for someone like Gooden to look good against. And then Abubakar Nurmagomedov, who's he's a future top 10 guy in, in this division. Uh, tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm right. Uh, and let me know who you got in this one. 
Yeah, so I agree with everything you were saying about Gooden. If you remember, I actually picked Gooden. I, I, th- I think I picked Gooden. Didn't I pick Gooden to beat uh, Nurmagomedov in his last fight? I mean, that was a terrible pick, but I think I'm pretty sure I picked Gooden in that fight. Um, you know, I, so, I'm too polite to remember. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. I, I'm sure someone will, will, will tell <laughs> we'll us in the comments. I, I, I'm pretty sure. Uh, so Gooden, the one thing that stands out to me is just how big of a dude he is. He's, he's big for the weight class. Uh I like his kickboxing. Not a lot of tells. He throws everything short. He doesn't really wind up on a lot of things. Kind of just touches. Um, everything comes off of, of a stinging jab. Does well to slide into the pocket, unload other shots. Uh, will work the uh, the body. I the one thing that jumps out to me. And I, I've said this three fights in a row because he does it. I hate his rare punch uppercut. Like throwing his, you know, his, if if you're in an orthodox stance, throwing your right hand lead uppercut, you're going to get knocked out. Ask. Chuck Liddell, ask Junior Del Santos. It, it's it's not going to work out. Uh, he doesn't like pressure either, and he doesn't like having someone who's more explosive than him. I Stolzer will pressure him. I don't think Stolzer is more ex- explosive than him. Uh, and and Gooden's a wrestler. He's a decent wrestler. He can get on your hips. He can out grab you. He, he, he's he's a solid grappler, but like he's not spectacular. He's not running yah yah or anything like that. Now move on to Stolzer. Uh, also massive for the weight class, but he's more um, long and lengthy than he is just just muscle. Uh, good movement. Actually, I'd say great movement. He moves around a lot. Uh, he does stand up a little high for my liking, and that's probably more of just from his height. But I love that he throws leg feints because he has such long legs. And those leg feints set up all his future kicks after that. Leg, kicks to the legs, kicks to the body. I love his step-in knees. Um his boxing is is serviceable. I don't think it's great. It's he's more of a kickboxer. Everything coming off his kicks. Uh, he can be backed up in a fence, which was really disturbing against a guy like uh, Amiv in his last fight, who wants to take him down. But what I love, like even though he lost, he clearly lost. I love that he snuck in a takedown on himself and took Amiv down. Like I like that moving forward. He's got weak takedown defense, but to his credit, he kept making Amiv work and he got back to his feet. And he does have five submissions on his record, and he was throwing up submissions. Uh, and he was throwing up submissions, and just because he didn't get them, he was using them to give him space to get up, which I loved. This is a tough fight to, to tell. If Gooden had a full camp, I would feel much better about him. I don't really know what his camp situation was. As as I found out about this fight, like, I don't know, 12 hours ago or something like that. So with that say, I'm going to go with Stulsa. I like his length. I like his leg kicks. I like his pressure. I like his underrated wrestling. So give me Stulsa uh, by decision. There you go. Uh, another bit of mild dissension here, as I will go with Gooden by decision. But uh, that fight should be a fun one. Third from the top of the UFC on ESPN 28 main card. It is a strawweight matchup between uh, two women looking for a little bit of redemption in Cheyenne Bays and Gloria de Paula. Uh, Bays, the 26-year-old, is 5-2 and two overall. She's 0-1 in the UFC uh, since earning a spot out of uh, Dana White's Contender Series last summer. Uh, her debut took place in March at UFC on ESPN, Brunson versus Holland. She dropped a unanimous decision to Montserrat Conejo Ruiz. She's taking on De Paula, the 26-year-old Brazilian, uh, also joined the UFC out of uh, Dana White's Contender Series last year, debuted also in March uh, at UFC Fight Night, Edwards versus Muhammad 
where she took on uh, Jin Yu Fry, who is mysteriously buried about six fights down below her on this card, but nonetheless beat her uh, by unanimous decision. So, uh, two women, 0-1 uh, in the UFC, looking for their first octagon win. Uh, Baze is the favorite here. She is minus 170, minus 175. You can get DePaula at uh, plus 150 on the comeback. Uh, Keith, I feel, and it seems as though you feel as well, that both of these women are better than they looked in their lone UFC outing. Uh, I'm not saying this fight belongs third from the top. I would argue that it probably belongs beneath... Uh, like both the other women's fights or, you know, uh, the other women's fight on this card, but here they are. And I, you know, I believe Bayes is better than she looked because, you know, coming up through the regionals uh, on her appearance on Dana White's contender series, she had a little bit of that Macy Barber energy, like not quite to the same extent, but someone who was decent everywhere, but what made it go was she was always a better, better athlete, always stronger and willing to leverage that and, and be aggressive. Uh, and then, you know, she ran into Montserrat Conejo, someone over whom she had all the physical and stylistic advantages and just completely failed to make any in-fight adjustments as Conejo threw that head and arm, uh, like headlock throw on her, I don't want to exaggerate, but it feels as though she probably did it like six times and just just first week of wrestling, you know, wrestling room like, OK, this is how you counter this and just was never able to to do it, you know, despite having, you know, Fortis MMA and her own husband, who's a decorated wrestler in, in her corner. I have to believe that that's an aberration, that someone who's as young and talented and generally well coached as she is, that was a one off like that's just not going to happen again. Same thing with DePaula. I have to believe that she is she is more like the woman who fought in Brazil and fought on the contender series and was like an aggressive, sharp striker than someone who just never got out of second gear against Jinyu Fry. Just uh, completely allowed Fry to impose the the Jinyu Fry game plan on her and really didn't even make many efforts to, to break out of that. It's almost like she just watched herself lose the fight. I have to believe that neither of them is that woman. But if both of them are the woman that I thought they were, uh, you know, after their contender series appearance, I've got Bayes in this one. and I've got her big time. Uh, just I, I don't think Paula's got the physicality to keep Bayes from. For one thing, I mean, Bayes could hit her on the feet. She's not as polished a striker, but I, she probably hits harder. Uh, and I think once she gets her hands on her, her offensive wrestling has never been in question. Like we spotted some holes in her defensive wrestling, obviously, but her offensive wrestling, not in question. I think she's going to take uh, DePaula down and kind of maul her on the ground. Uh, give me Cheyenne Bays and uh, give me Bays by third round TKO with ground strikes. Wow. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with everything you said about these two guys, uh, these two women being much better fighters than than they showed in the debuts. I like both of them coming off the contender series. I picked both of them to win their fights. I picked both of them to get contracts. Um, and 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 because of that, that's why I hate this matchup. I hate that they're booking two girls at zero and one that I think have promise. They just really get to bury the loser, and um, and then people are gonna look at them as not that good being owned two in the UFC and I kind of like both of them. Now I'll start with, with Bayes who you took. She's a Taekwondo black belt. She's got good movement on her feet. Uh, 
fast hands. Her straight right is her best punch. She likes her check left hook too. Good power. She I've seen her drop opponents in the past on the regional scene. Has good kicks. You see that with a taekwondo style, um, a lot of side kicks. She she mixes in wrestling though she can shoot from too far away. She has good body lock takedowns. She tries to head and arm throw herself, which I hate, but. Watch it on that regional scene. I thought she was a much better wrestler than she was. And then I saw what Ruiz did to her. As you mentioned, like she threw her like a dozen times. It was the same throw. And then I was like, wow, I really misevaluated this girl. Like it, it could have been in a, you know, ignored the, the, uh, adjust, you know, didn't make any adjustment, ignored it. And, and that really bothered me. She also struggled to get back up, which I didn't like. She is hard to submit. I go back to her when she was an amateur, uh, Vanessa. Uh, Demopolis put her in a bunch of submissions she didn't submit. Um, she also has some submissions of herself off her back. And she's insanely tough. She I go back to the Demopolis fight. She dislocated her elbow and this was an amateur fight in, in, in a fight that she was winning in the very and she dislocated her elbow and she kept trying to fight with a dislocated elbow to the referee had to stop it. Uh DePaulo, on the other hand, she's a high volume striker on the feet, light on her feet, long and lengthy, fast hands, long jabs, straight punches down the pipe accurate right hand throws combinations she has decent power um defensively she likes to pillar which i i I don't like i wish she would use more head movement but nice kicks i like her stepping knees her muay thai plum is a good offensive tool for striking but that was actually where junior fry was able to get uh two takedowns against her but uh she's got strong powerful knees and close her dirty boxing is good uh crushing high kick she will sneak in some takedowns herself, and her top control is solid. Uh, she likes to attack submissions, head attacks, guillotines, darces. She did it a lot against Polina and Macias. Uh, hard ground to pound, but weak takedown defense, which I didn't think it was an issue until the uh, Jinyu Fry fight. I didn't realize how much she struggled, especially. Uh, I mean, I seen her get headlock once on a regional scene, but I kind of blew that off. And. What stood out to me, not only did she take it down, but her struggle to get back up. Like when Junior Fry got a takedown, the round was over. Um, and Junior Fry briefly had her back. So it, it, I'm intrigued by the matchup because I like both of them. But like I said, I hate, I think they're still both good prospects. If it goes to the ground, I agree with you. Like Bay should, should win. And that's probably the most likely outcome. But on the feet, I like DePaulo. It really is a coin toss to me. So I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with the upset. I'm going to go with DePaulo by split decision. Uh, just I like her movement a lot, and uh, she's faced better competition than Baze has faced. So I'll go with that. But if Baze, like you said, Baze takes her down and just out-wrestles her to a decision, that wouldn't shock me at all. That brings us to the co-main event of UFC Vegas 33, and it is a bantamweight matchup between Kyung Ho Kang and Hani Yaya. Kang, the 33-year-old Korean, is 17-8 with one no contest. Overall, he is 6-2 with one no contest in the UFC. He's on a three-fight win streak. Uh, those wins coming over Pingwon Lu, whom he beat uh, via split decision at UFC Fight Night Edgar versus Korean Zombie back in December of 2019, over uh, Brandon Davis, whom he beat at uh, UFC 241 in August of 2019, and Teruto Ishihara, whom he choked to sleep at uh, UFC 234 all the way back in February of 2019. He's taking on Yaya, the 
36-year-old Brazilian is 27-10-1 with one no contest overall. He's 10-6-1 with one no contest since joining the UFC out of the acquisition of World Extreme Cage Fighting. Uh, he fought most recently in March, uh, choking out Ray Rodriguez with an arm triangle choke in the second round at UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad. Prior to that, his last appearance was a majority draw with Enrique Barzola at UFC Fight Night Lee versus Oliveira back in March of 2020. Uh, Kang is the slight favorite here, despite the long layoff. He is minus 140, where Yaya is available at plus 120 uh, as the slight underdog. Uh, one might reasonably ask, how was this the co-main event? Uh, certainly Keith and I have asked it, but you look at it, uh, this is the only other fight than, than the main event between two people who have uh, winning records in the UFC and are both coming off of a win. Uh, I'd also argue that they're two slightly underappreciated guys. Uh, you know, Kang, obviously, because he's been out of the sport for over a year and a half. Yaya, because he's Hani Yaya. And he is right up there with, he's right up there with Michael Johnson on the list of people where if you take his best wins and his worst losses, the gap between the two of them is the widest. Like, I can't believe that the same guy who beat blank managed to lose to blank. And it's not because, you know, he fell off a cliff or, you know, just got in a horrible car accident or something. It's just he is that unpredictable and he's that weird of a stylistic matchup. Uh, in a sport where announcers and sometimes media and fans are too eager to turn around, uh, to throw around the uh, the term world-class for somebody's skill set, Aniai is absolutely a world-class grappler. He is a two-time Mundial's gold medalist. He's an Abu Dhabi winner and an Abu Dhabi runner-up. He is one of the greatest lighter weight uh, grapplers ever to cross over from BJJ to MMA in the prime of his career. Uh, having said that, I mean, what he does best, the guy is, um, this is, I, this is his 40th fight. Yeah, he's 39 fight veteran, uh, 27 wins. 21 by submission, zero TKO or, 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 or KO. I mean, you have to try not to have a single win by TKO in a 40-fight MMA career. I mean, even even Damian Maya accidentally TKO'd some people on the ground. Like, Dhani Yaya is, like, as much of a specialist as you'll find in the sport today. And to be able to do what he needs to do against Kyung Ho Kang, I, I think that's going to be a big ask. Uh, Kang is a huge bantamweight. If the time off and, and injuries have not compromised him, he's going to be stronger and a better athlete than Yaya. The good thing about Hani Yaya is, yes, he's a grappling specialist. He has a ton of submissions, but he's also the kind of grappler who can win rounds. So, I mean, he can win a decision just by keeping you in desperate trouble on the ground for two rounds out of three. But I think he's going to have trouble even getting it there against Kang. Unless Kang is severely compromised, I see him just uh, piecing up Haniyaya's extremely rudimentary striking and, and footwork for at least two out of three rounds and just winning a pretty straightforward decision. I don't think it'll be a barn burner, but it'll remind us of how good Kyung Ho Kang has been. And, you know, in as much flux as Bantamweight has been in recently, to have a guy who's, uh, you know, still on the right side of 35 and is on a four-fight win streak, yeah, it'll be interesting to have him back. Kyung Ho King by decision. Yeah. Um, the first thing I want to say about Kang is, is how he won a split decision against 
uh, Brandon Davis is is madness to me. Like how that was a split decision. Like he easily won that fight. <laughs> like I, I don't know what the judge is watching. Uh, Kang on the feet, beautiful jab, straight punches down the pipe, accurate right hand, great power. He dropped Brandon Davis with punches, quick high kick. He doesn't check leg kicks though. Like Brandon Davis did have some success beating up his leg with kicks. He does still keep his chin high in the air, which I don't like. But I like his wrestling too. Good timing on his entries. Though sometimes he'll shoot, you know, overextend and be stuck on on bottom. But most times he gets the takedowns. Good top control. Stays glued to his opponent. We saw that in his last fight. Good ground and pound. Good back takes. He is a submission threat. Has 11 subs on his record. Moody, yeah, yeah, you know what he is. He's 36. Obviously, he's on his last leg. Uh, he was never a good striker. And obviously, I don't, I, I don't think he's gonna get better at this age. I think he's gonna get worse. But he's a wild man on the feet. Like he just throws hard. He's extremely aggressive. There's everything he has in every shot. You said it. Like he's not going to knock you out, uh, as you mentioned. But he, I, I think he's brilliant. What he does. Like I said this last time. I think the last time I said this when we were breaking him down. He likes to be wild because he wants you to be dumb enough to take him down. Like you, you get a lot of pressure on him throwing wild, and you drop down, and you either one pull your hands up to block those wild things and he can shoot underneath you or you drop down and, and get into his guard. Uh, he, he's a good wrestler for, you know, he's not just a, a just guy. He, he's got good entries. If he can't get you down there, he'll pull guard. He's an extremely high level grappler. You talked about his credentials, great in scrambles, slick back takes has 20 sum- career submissions, but I also like that he has a wide variety of them. He has pretty, he's hit pretty much every single sub there is in the game. He can armbar you, rear naked choke, kill, whatever. Like he'll, he'll do all of them. Uh, the Enrique Barzola fight is is very um, worrisome to me because he, he gassed out in that fight. So this comes down to can he trick Kang into shooting? And if Kang shoots, will the size difference be that big of a fair? And can, uh, can he outwork in the grappling uh, Kang? Two huge major things. This is the fight I have the, of the entire card I've had the least amount of confidence in because I really, really like Kang. Uh, if he keeps it on the feet, I totally agree with you. I think he smashes Yaya. I think he actually might put him out. However, I think Yaya's pressure is going to force Kang to go what he's very natural at doing when someone over-pursues, and that's the shoot. And he he usually has the grappling advantage over pretty much everyone he faces. However, there's very few people I would pick to outgrapple Ronnie Yaya. And Kang ain't one of them. I think Kang's going to be winning the fight, like you say, and then I think he's going to make a mistake and shoot on Ronnie Yaya out of just habit. And I think Ronnie Yaya is going to catch him in a scramble, and I'm going to even say he catches him in a guillotine in the first round, and it's going to be one of those ones that if they refight six months from now, Kang destroys him. So I'm taking Ronnie Yaya, and I've, I've picked this. This might be a disaster for me because I picked a lot of upsets tonight, but I'm locking this one in as my upset special. There you go. Your upset special, courtesy of Keith Schillen, is Honey Yaya over Kyung Ho Kang. With that, we come to the main event of UFC on ESPN Hall versus Strickland. It is a middleweight matchup between Uriah Hall and Sean Strickland. Hall, the 36-year-old Jamaican by way of New York, by way of Dallas, is 17-9 and overall. He is 10-8 and in the UFC since joining as the runner-up of the Ultimate Fighter Season 17. He is currently on a four-fight win streak, uh, three of them by stoppage, 
He has defeated Bevon Lewis, Antonio Carlos Jr., Anderson Silva, and most recently in April, uh, Chris Weidman, who succumbed to a grisly leg injury just 17 seconds into the first round. He is taking on Strickland. The 30-year-old Californian is 23-3 overall. He's 10-3 in the UFC. Uh, he's on a four-fight win streak, but most notably, he is 3-0 since returning late last year from a two-year uh, injury layoff and the decision, apparently, to stick at middleweight for good, where he had fought both at 185 and 170 previously. He fought most recently on May 1st, uh, taking a unanimous decision over Christoph Yatko at UFC on ESPN Reyes versus Prohaska. Prior to that, he knocked out Brendan Allen at uh, UFC Fight Night Felder versus Dos Anjos last November. And uh, his return fight from that injury layoff was on the Hall versus Silva Halloween card, where he took a dominant unanimous decision over Jack Marshman. Uh, Strickland is the comfortable favorite here. He is minus 220, where you can get Hall at plus 180 on the comeback. Uh, Keith, I'm going to throw this to you for your pick first, but something interesting that you said to me uh, off air was that you were excited to see Strickland or see if Strickland can continue to get this thing done against higher level composition uh, competition than what he's been facing. Now, uh, obviously, the uh, the Brendan Allen win is probably going to continue to age pretty well as Allen continues to do well. But uh, wh what is it about Hall that you know you're interested to see if Strickland can deal with, and how do you see the fight going? Yeah, I I don't know if it's anything about Hall necessarily, just that step up in competition. You know, he's faced, you know, guys, you know, lower down the rankings, you know, and seeing him continue to like say what you want about Brendan Allen. He's he's not a ranked, you know, highly ranked guy like Uriah Hall is. I just want to see uh it's I know you've kind of really been pushing the um you know, the bandwagon for uh Strickland. You were kind of one of the guys who kept mentioning how well he's doing. And it's it's a nice story. And I just kind of want to see how far it goes on. This is like another big step up to see. So Uriah Hall, like, we, I think about Uriah Hall, this is what I'll say, like, there's, there's good in Uriah Hall, there's bad Uriah Hall. And it's so frustrating because you never know which one's going to show up. So we take, like, the bad, like, the things that, the bad things that Uriah Hall does. He, he ends up very tall, lacks head movement. For such a good striker, he kind of, his head stays very stiff. He doesn't like to be pressured. He can be trigger shy. A perfect example of that is the Anderson Silva fight. Like he was way superior to Anderson Silva. It was still giving away rounds just by simply not throwing. And Anderson Silva wasn't throwing much himself. <laughs> and he was still getting outworked. And then his chin, he's been knocked out in the past a lot. He's taken a lot of damage over the years. Uh, it, you know, the good, he's very strong, obviously. He's got fast hands when he decides to throw them. He's got a nice jab. Everything works off the jab. He's got elite power. Like he's he's he really is a legendary knockout hitter when he when he uh, does things. Obviously, the spinning attacks, the out of this world athleticism. When we think about like people still talk about Uriah Hall's knockout on the the Ultimate Fighter is one of the greatest knockouts ever, if not the greatest. I don't I don't have it as the greatest, but one of them. Um, and he's also he's he's underrated on the ground. He's a much better on the ground. You think like all, all you gotta do is look at the Antonio Carlos Jr. fight where Carlos Jr. had his back. For the entire third round, it could submit him. And this is turn to college, Jules submits almost everybody. He gets his back. So that's, it. but the problem is, is we never know which Uriah Hall. Like I've heard the story about Uriah Hall. Like 
oh man, this guy could win the title one day. And like, if someone told me Uriah Hall is, well, hold on, not with Israel Sanya because that's a really terrible stylistic matchup. But going back when, say, Robert Whitaker was the champion, if someone told me Uriah Hall would win the title one day, like I'd be like, yeah, I I could see that. If someone told me at the same time Uriah Hall is never going to win another fight in the UFC, I go, oh yeah, I could see that. Like that's how I feel about Uriah Hall. Yeah, um, now Strickland. My question mark is, is he this level? Like, that's the question. Like, we know he's probably top 15 now, but now is he top 10? Like, is, is he is he a main event level guy moving forward? There's a lot of things I like about Strickland. He's technically sound boxer. I love that he's a builder. He, he As the fight goes on, he just continues to he's, – he, he, he picks up reads early, and then he builds on them. And he has very Max Holloway style to him where the third round he's thrown even more output than he was in the first round. He's just constantly moving forward, uh, which is why he's a little flat-footed because he's he's, he's stepping forward. And he's, he's flat-footed and he's, he's pushing off his feet to to land shots. Well, um, and he just – he doesn't move. He stands right in front of you and he's just going to beat you with pressure. He's got an elite, an elite jab. It really, really is a good one. Uh, it's like 90% of his offense. Not, not a lot of tells. Short – Short shots uh, doesn't really load up doesn't doesn't really show. I like his straight his straight right though. Like if if ninety percent is, is his uh, is his jab, I, I probably exaggerate a little bit. But like that straight right makes up the rest and it's a good one. Good power. Uh, if there's any room left in the hundred percent that I somehow went down, uh, the rest of it's hard kicks to the body. He doesn't check leg kicks. He and that's his boxing style is very heavy on his front foot. But if you close the distance on him, he's strong in the clinch. He's willing to just kind of press you against the cage, lean on you. Um, doesn't have a lot of offensive grappling, but he has strong defensive grappling. So for his prediction, uh, I'm looking at the lines, and, and I apologize. I wasn't listening to what you were saying about uh, the betting lines because I forgot that I didn't put the Pitbull, AJ McKee fight, what we're doing next, on my on my list, the, the notes. So I was trying to scramble, trying to be cool. But I'm looking at Strickling like over two to one favorite. Like that's crazy to me. Like like like, like that's one of the craziest lines I've ever seen. I think this should be as close to a pick'em fight as there is. In fact, if you told me like I didn't, you know, other than maybe a couple hours ago when I checked the lines, if you told me like who's the favorite, I would have thought you were a bigger name, been in the main events before, you know, has you know went over and still just broke. Chris Wyman's leg. I expected him to be the favorite. Hall is that said. Hall is so inactive. He's so inactive. I mean, in the cage, not actually fighting, but inactive. He's so frustrating. I'm willing to be proven wrong by him. Like I'm willing to pick against him and just be like, yeah, I, I don't know how to read Uriah Hall because I really, I'll admit, I don't know how to read Uriah Hall. I love that he's with Florida MMA. If any team can turn a guy's career around and make them a championship caliber fighter i think like safe sayud seems like he has just a way to talk to fighters and it's working well with uriah hall so i like that however his activity is still an issue he gives rounds away and he hates pressure and that's all things like strickland knows how to win rounds just by matching forward and throwing non-stop jabs and hard kicks he's strickland's going to have to walk through uriah hall's straight right his own jab his kicks, maybe some spinning attacks. He's going to have to walk through that, and there's a very good chance Uriah Hall just lands one and puts him out. But 
I think it's going to be the opposite. I think Strickland's going to put Uriah Hall on his back foot and really frustrate him and just win rounds and 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 just win by being more active. So give me Sean Strickland by unanimous decision. I love a lot of what you put out there. I, I love that you that you uh, laid out the idea that you know Hall's you know ground game is probably a, a little underrated or or not talked enough about because we've kind of been throwing out and incorrect or at least incomplete and unfair narrative about the guy really since the first time he popped up on anybody's radar outside of the greater New York area, you know, which was tough. You know, the, the narrative that came out of the tough 17 finale was that Hall was like the hype machine that the UFC was trying to groom as its next uh, superstar. And that, you know, Kelvin Gastelum, the, you know, the pudgy unsung 22 year old like wrestler kid, you know, like derailed the hype train. One, Hall never asked to be the hype train. He never asked anyone to call him the next Anderson Silva. He couldn't help that he kicked third grade out of Adam Sella's head. And two, the actual, like, I went back and watched uh, that tough finale fight. It wasn't uh, ahead of this. It was a, it was ahead, I think, of either the Weidman or the, the Silva fight. And I had bought into that narrative enough that I found that I had misremembered it. One, Hall versus Gaslam at that finale was one of the best tough finale fights ever. Two, it really wasn't a striker versus wrestler matchup. I mean, Gaslam probably got a little bit the better of the wrestling overall, but he didn't beat him with wrestling. And the best takedown of the fight was Hall going belly to back and launching Gaslam and slamming him. You know, like he's been a, 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 at least an okay wrestler since that far back when he was that raw. Uh, ever since then, it's another one of those guys kind of like that we talked about, like, yeah, yeah, like Michael Johnson, where on any given night capable of beating an elite fighter on any given fight capable of losing to a non elite fighter. Uh, as as much as I agree with you that it'll be interesting to uh, see Strickland kind of try to do his thing against someone who brings the weapons to the table that Hall does. The opposite holds true as well. Hall's on a you know four fight win streak, but Bevon Lewis is out of the UFC. Uh, Antonio Carlos Jr., out of the UFC, but probably could still be in the UFC. He's a solid fighter. And then Anderson Silva wanted to have a, you know, slightly hard sparring session, and the Chris Weidman fight was over before we could learn anything, even if I heavily favored Hall going into it. Like That's a good point. It's a really Hall's good point. Got, Hall's, like, for each of these guys, it will be a signature win if, if he beats yeah. the other. That's a good point. But I'm with you. The, the things that Strickland wants to do match up really badly with the things that Hall has always struggled to fight off. Someone that comes forward, you know, with pressure, someone that builds. I'm interested to see Strickland in a five round fight. I have the feeling that that will favor him even more, uh, you know, like moving up to 185, I'm sure has benefited his gas tank and his ability to take punishment. So, yeah, I mean, I, I root for Hall to do well because he has a style that I want to see more of in the UFC. And for that to happen, he needed to keep winning. Uh, I've, you know, I've been in a lot of gyms. I've, you know, been around a lot of sparring. It takes a lot to like, kind of make me like look across the room. But uh, a couple of events ago here in Texas, there was an open sparring session, like it, a small one, like they had it at like some Henzo Gracie Academy and a bunch of Fortis guys came down here to Houston for it. And watching Uriah Hall and Jeff Neal like kick pads from like five feet away. Dude, I wanted to flinch, but I was afraid people would, were going to laugh at me. Like, dude, I've been in a lot of gyms. 
like, but the sound of Hall, like, you know, and Neil, like, hitting and kicking each other's pads was terrifying. Uh, good Lord, I would never spar with that man. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I'm with you. It's sad as it makes, it, it's going to be kind of a sad thing where it'll probably look pretty interesting early on. Maybe Hall will even, like, hurt Strickland with something, and that'll prolong things because Strickland will get a little more cautious. But I expect him to build from round to round. And I think he might even finish it sometime in the uh, in the fourth or fifth, uh, as he continues building and and Hall keeps fading. Uh, give me Sean Strickland by fourth round TKO. All right, uh, just a little bit of bonus com uh, content from Shillin and Duffy here. As with all due respect, the biggest fight of the weekend takes place at the Forum in Inglewood, California. As the main event of Bellator 263 features Patricio Pitbull Freire versus AJ McKee in the finals of the Bellator Featherweight Grand Prix with both the Grand Prix Championship and Pitbull's uh, lineal belt on the line. Uh, I'll say this right off the bat. Whenever you try to hold up something happening outside of the UFC to what's happening in the UFC, there's a bit of politics to it. Like, not talking about, like, literal, like, geopolitics, but because there's such a contingent of fans who think anything happening outside the UFC is, you know, not worth talking about, and then there's the, on the opposite side, the contingent that thinks that if, you know, you're trying to elevate anything else to the level of the UFC, you're just trying to be a hipster or trying to be contrarian or you hate Dana White or whatever it is. This is not us sitting here and saying, no, the best fight this weekend is a couple of, you know, Japanese atom weights, you know, fighting at three in the morning Eastern time. No, like this is the top fight of the weekend in terms of the stakes, the historical legacy based stakes. It's the highest level fight of the weekend in terms of uh, just the accomplishments of the two men getting in the cage. And it has every possibility of being the best fight of the weekend in terms of what actually happens once they get in there. Tell me I'm lying about any of that, Keith. Dude, you are not lying. I think this is the biggest fight in Bellator history. That said, I don't think they promoted it right. We're a couple of days away, and you barely hear people talking about it. And I'm like ecstatic about it. It, I know COVID, and and that has really made it tough for them to promote. And I understand that, but they should have been. And I'm not saying this is the perfect comparison, but this should have been like Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes type comparison, like the goat versus the future goat. Now, when I'm saying GOAT, I'm not talking about anything. I'm talking about Bellator. Yeah. That's what it is. It's the greatest fighter in Bellator history. And when I say that, I'm talking strictly what they did in Bellator. I'm not talking yeah. about Fedor and Pride. Most people understand what I'm saying. Yes. But that's what Pitbull is. He's, when you take it strictly, Bellator accomplishments, he's the best. It's not even close. And Pitbull, um, excuse me, McKee seems like the next one. Like he seems like the Patrick Holmes. And that's how it should be promoted. Uh, sure, I understand that they have. Uh, the hands tied when ESPN is partnered with their main competition and, and pretty much refuses to cover Bellator, you know, uh, you know, I, but when I go to Yahoo, like the cover for Yahoo should be this one. When we go to SureDog, the cover of, of SureDog right now, and I, hope, I hope it is, is, is something to do with Pitbull and, and McKee. Cause it's a bigger fight. It's a better fight. It's, it's the best fight of the weekend. And, I'll say this, like, not only is it the best fight of the weekend, it's, it is, in my opinion, the the fight that I am most excited that is currently booked. Like, I can't think of a fight that's currently booked that I'm more excited. 
and I'm trying to, and, and I might be living in the moment because I'm so excited for this matchup. And, and there's a little backstory to it because, and probably why I'm so excited, I was talking to uh, a PR guy from Bellator years ago, like two years ago. And we were t- just talking about, and I'm not going to say his name, but we were just talking about comparison UFC and and Bellator promotional-wise. And I always said that, yeah, the UFC matters, and, and the name UFC really, really matters. There's so many people, like you were saying, just think of MMA, think of UFC. But it's still a star-driven sport. Like, it's always been a star. Like, the stars are bigger than the, the brand. And I said, if anybody could be the guy for you guys, it's AJ McKee. And this is before it was probably this is before the Grand Prix started. He's like, I, he's the guy I would put all my marketing in. They didn't, but they should have. You know, he's got the personality, he's got the skills. Now he's doing crazy stuff we've never seen before. And he's obviously he's undefeated. He's homegrown, which that I know means so much to them. Like this wasn't someone, this wasn't a guy that they got outside of. He's had his entire career in Bellator. So it's just a it's a big moment for them. And I, I feel like I might my predict I'm not saying I'm picking the key to beat Pipple, but that I I just feel like that vision I had two years ago is now here. And I, I don't know, and I might be living in the moment, but I don't remember the last time any Bellator fight I was this excited for. And I don't remember the last time I was excited for a UFC fight. Like I'm more excited for this fight than than McGregor versus Poirier three was. I mean all right, all right, all right. I may all right. You said we weren't gonna be hipsters. I might be. I might be in a little bit of a hipster, but uh, yeah, let's just talk about it. Let's get. Let's get into this, man. All right. Well, it is Patricio Pitbull versus AJ McKee. Uh, uh, Freire Pitbull, the 34-year-old Brazilian, is 32 and four overall. He's 20 and four in uh, Bellator. He is on a seven-fight uh, win streak, including uh, the first couple of rounds of the uh, ongoing Grand Prix. He fought most recently in April, choking Emmanuel Sanchez all the way out with the guillotine in the first round at uh, Bellator 255. Uh, he takes on McKee. The 26-year-old Californian is 17-0. All 17 of those wins coming within the round Bellator cage. He is on a 17-fight winning streak. Uh, he fought most recently in November at Bellator 253. Uh, tapping out Darian Caldwell with a neck crank from guard straight out of a Boss Rutten self-defense instructional from 1999. Uh, odds on this one, close to a pick'em. Despite uh, Pitbull being one of the most accomplished pound-for-pound fighters in the sport, he is out there around minus 120. You can find uh, McKee at even money currently. You know He's out there plus 100 on a couple of sites. Uh, those lines haven't moved this much, uh, moved that much this week either. In, I mean, in as unpredictable a sport as MMA, and all that is compounded when you're talking about having uh, tournaments, talking about having Grand Prix, it's a bit of a blessing that this Grand Prix actually gave us the matchup that everybody wanted from the beginning. I mean, think of all the Grand Prix we've had over the years where just the matchup that everybody wanted was derailed. You know, that's how we lost uh, Fedor versus Krokop the first time. That's right. That's yep. right. I mean, remember Daniel Cormier coming in as an alternate and winning the strike force that's heavyweight right. Grand Prix. Uh, like Chuck just Liddell the fact and Vanderlei that Silva. Chuck Liddell, Vanderlei Silva never happened. Rampage. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, 
This is almost the first Grand Prix I can think of where the absolute matchup that everybody wanted from the start actually happened, and there was never sure. even an instant. There was there was never even an instant of doubt that this is what we were going to get. Like once these guys got in the cage, they completely trucked everybody they faced. Uh, both of their stock has risen during that time. McKee because he's doing things we've never seen before. Uh, Pitbull because hey, the flip side, uh, you know, the other edge of that two-edged sword is that. Michael Chandler, while this all went on, went over to the UFC, completely lamped a top 10, if not top five contender, and then came pretty close to becoming UFC uh, lightweight champion. I mean, just sign into every event. Imagine how big this would be if Chandler was the champion. Oh, you know what I mean? That'd be even this makes the matchup even bigger. I had no rooting interest in that fight. You know, I was there live for uh, UFC 262 when Oliveira and Chandler fought. I had no rooting interest. I was just like, let, let it be a great fight. It was a great fight. But I won't pretend I wasn't a little sad that Chandler didn't win just so I could see what Pitbull started to tweet immediately. Wow. But, dude, I mean, that Chandler came close. Like, that could have been stopped in that first round, and it would have been an early stoppage, but it wouldn't even have been, like, the worst stoppage of that year. Probably wouldn't even have been the worst stoppage of the year in a championship fight, honestly. Like, he came razor close to being your UFC uh, champion. So... That does something to shine a light on and validate a lot of what Pitbull has been doing over the last few years. The guy, I mean, he's been fighting the, the best Bellator has to throw at him for a decade now. He has four losses, and they're all close decisions except for, you know, the freak leg injury from, like, former welterweight Benson Henderson putting his weight on him. Like, he, he just hasn't had any bad outings. And he seems to have continued to improve even after like his 30th, 31st, 32nd birthday. He still seems to be putting new wrinkles into his game. Like his striking is, uh, it, it feels to me like his striking is just much more technically and defensively sound. He's always had a ton of power. He's kind of got that just like short man winds up and throws hooks power that, you know, it's been a factor in MMA since, you know, the, the beginning. But he just, he seems to have a more complete tool set uh, like I say, much more defensively sound. I, you know, I'm I'm going to let you weigh in on these things for me. With him and McKee, I'm most interested to see what happens when it hits the ground because McKee is just, well, for, for one thing, he's a very, very good wrestler. But even on the extremely rare occasions when someone's been able to either stop him from wrestling or, or actually take him down, as Caldwell did in, in their fight, he just seems to be a, like two full steps ahead of everybody on the ground. Like I, I think he might even be better on the ground than he is on the feet. Just, you know, creative, athletic, great sense of body position, plenty strong enough. And yeah, just, just again, just like two steps ahead of, of what his opponent's trying to do, you know, and the most obvious recent example, of course, is the Caldwell fight where he was slapping that on Caldwell as though it was something he had done a thousand times in practice when, you know, he cannot possibly have done so. And Caldwell didn't even realize what was being done to him until it until it was too late. I thought Caldwell thought he was doing well until probably about the last five seconds, until he realized, oh, I'm stuck and this hurts. Uh, I I can't even venture a, a pick on this, but I am actually leaning slightly in in the direction of McKee just because of the way he still continues to improve and show new wrinkles between each fight. Just each of his last few fights, each of he keeps showing us things that we've never seen before from him, and he keeps showing us things that we've never seen before from anybody. Like, matchups that were supposed to be tough matchups for him, he's just blown through them like they were nothing. Like, 
you know, Pat Curran was supposed to be a serious test for him, and he beat uh, Curran worse than uh, than Pitbull or Daniel Strauss ever did when they were having their big round robin of you know fighting each other three times. You know, Georgie Karakanyan was this tough as nails, uh, you know, veteran who had never been just like flat out knocked out. Like he, you know, lost like TKOs due to cuts and stuff, but, but had never just like actually been knocked out. He knocked him out in eight seconds. He called you know, the shot Caldwell, He called a shot and Caldwell was supposed to be, okay, this guy's a better wrestler than McKee. Let's see what McKee can do when someone puts him on his back. What he did was he tapped him out in a minute. Like, <laughs> So I I can't even predict how McKee is going to do it, but I've just sort I, I've sort of bought into the hype and the magic at this point that you know when he's pressed he's going to show us something we haven't seen before, and I'm leaning McKee. Wow, so you're talking about the betting lines of how close it is. Like I love that it's so close. I'm on uh, bestfightodds.com. They have ten betting lines out there different different sites like that it's a really good site to see uh it shows you movement shows you all kind of stuff it's it's i know a lot of people use that site of the 10 betting lines three of them actually have mckee as the favorite <laughs> like uh uh bet mgm DraftKings, and five dimes all have mckee as the slight like negative 115 to negative 105 so yeah. like even the betting lines couldn't pick who the favorite is uh and, and what impressed me most is we, you were just talking about the run they had going through the tournament. They both were pretty much perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, Pitbull has two first-round stoppages in the quarterfinals and the semifinals, and his open round is against the former, you know, bantamweight champion that he blanked him on all five rounds. AJ McKee, like, what was more impressive—the crazy, insane submission of Darren Caldwell in the semis, or the open round knockout, the eight-second knockout of Georgie Karakhanian? Like, what was more impressive? Like, they're both insane. And then, did AJ lose maybe about 10 seconds? Like, Derek Campos got a takedown on him or something, like, briefly. And then, uh, you know, he was – Yeah, I remember them saying, like, oh, AJ looks tired. And then all of a sudden he was, like, submitting him with a the triangle, like, five seconds later. Uh, so, I'll – I know I probably overplayed how big of a matchup, how excited I am. Like, yeah, I understand. I probably I, – I, I know I live in the moment. But – so, let's talk about Pitbull. Let's talk about his skills. So this guy – you were dead right. Like he's getting better at, at his age, which is insane. Uh, he's a pressure counter striker that throws a lot of counter power hooks. He's got power in both of his hands. He tends to just kind of sit back and then suddenly explode with hard combos. Uh, if you stay, if you stay back, he'll just chop your legs, kick out your legs. I am a little worried about his chin because he's been in so many wars over the years. Like eventually, he's going to catch up to him, and he, we've seen him hurt before. Uh, but another thing we don't talk about him, like we talk, you talk about his power and his knockout. He's an underrated wrestler, smothering top control. You saw what he did to Daniel Weishel, what he did to Juan Archuleta, but just out wrestling them. He's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Can submit you. His guillotine is one of the best in all of MMA. He hit it on Henry Corrales. He hit it on Daniel Strauss. He just hit it in his last match against Manuel Sanchez. So uh, the only thing you could probably do to him is maybe out wrestle him, and that's a really hard task to say for 25 minutes. And if you're shooting on his hips, you're going into that guillotine zone, and uh, obviously all he needs is to land one punch. And it's just I mean, like you mentioned, Michael Chandler moving up in weight. AJ McKee, 26 years old. The scary thing about this guy, you're saying he's doing things that people haven't seen. He's 26. Like he might not even be in his prime yet, which is which is really scary to think. Uh, it, I was talking to Antonio McKee. 
And when I was doing the preview, like I, I wrote a preview for the, this, even though it started such a long time ago, I wrote a preview for this. I didn't make a prediction, just breaking down guys' skill sets. And I said, AJ McKee makes the biggest gaps of improvement from fight to fight that I've ever seen a fighter make. Uh, he's oozing with confidence. He has like a McGregor level confidence to his game, the way he's talking right now. Like he envisions it already. Like he's already seen it happen before, before it went down. Uh, actual skills, southpaw. He's got those long arms, long legs, great footwork, long jab, beautiful check hook, tons of kicks, deep kicks, uh, high kick, the high kick that he landed on. Um, oh God, I was there live in a tense. I can't think of what was the guy's name. The little short white guy. Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, um, Wait, is sh- McKee landed? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, Adrian McKee landed a high kick. It was beautiful. Uh, Dominic Mazzotta. Dominic Mazzotta, yeah, yeah. He was a guy who took the fight on short notice. He came in and finished short notice, but high kicks, uh, spinning attacks. He's got big power. Just ask Georgia Caratani, and he's, he's put guys out. Great wrestler, great timing on his entries, great scram, winning scrambles. He's got those long legs to get the sub, as you mentioned, the Darren Caldwell sub. He was calling you, you were saying it was a modified neck crank. I know he said it's a shoulder lock. That's actually, sh- I, I don't know. But he, the fact that Pitbull, he, like, that was one of the tweets at Pitbull, like, you, you're a black belt. You never know what I, what submission I did. Uh, and then you go back to the Pat Curran fight. You talk about Pat Curran. Remember Pat Curran tried to take him down and he just ate like slicing elbow, Kenny Florian style from the back. Like I said, there's a reason why we added this. We've never done that where we added a Bellator fight because it, it really, I mean, look how excited. I am right now talking about this. Like I'm way more excited than any other fight. If 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 I could only choose to watch the entire UFC card or just this fight, I'm picking just this fight. I think it's the best fighter in organization's history versus the best prospect, in my opinion. Not the best prospect in Bellator. I think he's the best prospect in all of MMA. I think Pitbull is so underrated Histor- historically, currently. If if someone told me that he's the best, like when so when Bellator promotes their guys, they like to oversell. Like they always sell, you know, Cyborg's the goat. I get it; it's a promotional thing. Even though we also have Amanda Nunes knockout, they still sell Cyborg's the goat, Fedor's the goat. They always say, but they, if they tried saying to me that Pitbull is the best featherweight in the world or the best lightweight in the world, like I'm not rolling my eyes. I'm not saying I agree with it. But he very well might be the best featherweight in the world. He very well might be the best lightweight in the world. If Pitbull got matched against Alex Volkanovski, I wouldn't be shocked if Pitbull knocked out Volkanovski. If he got put against Charles Oliveira, I'm not shocked if he knocked out Charles Oliveira. Like, he really very well could be the best fighter in two different weight classes. We don't really know, unfortunately. Now, McKee, on the other hand, he just seems special. Like, he seems like a different, like, this is, uh, you know... I, I to pull back the curtain. When I do film study on guys, I I make four columns. I write things I like about their striking, things I don't like about their striking, things I like about their grappling, things I don't like about their grappling. All right, and then I have like a couple fun notes on top, teams, their age, whatever, like things that aren't technical. More, you know. If I showed you my notebook right now. I have a whole bunch of things under good striking for AJ McKee. I have a whole bunch of things under good grappling for AJ McKee. The total number of things I have under bad striking and bad grappling, the total number is zero. I haven't found a floor in this guy yet. Maybe he's been taken down a little bit, but as soon as you take him down, he submits you. Um, You picked Adrian Key, and that's really bold, and I don't feel comfortable picking against Pitbull. But it just seems like it's AJ's time. He, before the tournament started, 
I made a prediction that AJ is making the biggest jumps and improvements I've ever seen, and that he was my pick to win the tournament, which wasn't a trendy pick then. I'm going bold. I think AJ puts him out in the first round. I think he's that special. I think AJ's going to knock him out. That's my pick. That's my bold pick of the night. There you go. Two picks for the well, currently almost even money AJ McKee to make history. Uh, take the featherweight Grand Prix trophy, take the belt, and perhaps take the mantle of uh, Bellator's greatest homegrown fighter. Uh, I imagine we'll end up talking, uh, well, we'll I and whoever replaces you on Saturday will end up talking about uh, this fight as well as the UFC card. But there you have it. The uh, SureDog Radio preview and prediction show for UFC on ESPN 28, Hall versus Strickland, plus a little bonus content about the Bellator 263 headliner between Pitbull and McKee. Uh, I've been your host, Ben Duffy. With me, as always, has been Keith Schillen. Uh, Certainly enjoy the fights. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Uh, check us out on the recap. Uh, probably shortly after the UFC main event wraps, uh, unless the Bellator main event is about to start. So we will kind of play it by ear. We'll keep you posted on SureDog's social media. Thank you, and uh, thanks for listening.